The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast, episode 10. I'm not trying to be tentative. Oh, that's terrible. The puns are bad. Hashtag dad joke. <laughs> so, Ilya, I hear that we have some really good news about the Cinematography Podcast. You want to talk about something? We do. As a matter of fact, for the first time ever, other than Hot Rod Cameras, the Cinematography Podcast has a sponsor. What? Yes, we have a sponsor, and uh, we want to start off by thanking our sponsor, Carl Zeiss, maker of some of the finest optics in the world. The best lenses. I've been using Carl Zeiss lenses. This is not a lie. I've been using them since college. The first time I ever used a Zeiss lens was in 1991. Those are great lenses. They're, They're amazing. Good. And they were they were great in the 90s. They were great in the 80s. They were great in the 70s. In fact, I know a lot of people who are shooting on vintage Zeiss lenses, but the new ones are also fantastic. So you can find more about Zeiss by going to Zeiss.com. How do you spell that? <laughs> Z-E-I-S-S.com. How do you spell .com? Well, that's well, great. <laughs> Thank you, Carl Zeiss. Uh, we couldn't be happier to have you as a sponsor. No, extremely happy. And it's really great to have such a wonderful, wonderful company uh, believing in us and uh, helping to support us, you know, get get these episodes out more often. Yes, that's the hope. In fact, we have uh, at least two others that are already recorded and, and sitting in my editing system waiting for me to, uh, you know. And, and Ben, you've got a some pretty good reasons why you haven't been editing those. You've been all over the country. You've been flying here and there. Tell us what has been going on in the world of Ben Rock. Well, I've been a world traveler, but uh, or I guess I'm not really a world traveler. I've been a, a nationwide traveler. Um, but I, th- I think that actually there's there's something here for uh, filmmakers that I think is a little bit more interesting uh, than just how awesome I am. Cause I'm pretty impressed with myself, but, uh, <laughs> I don't expect anyone else to be, um, it, you can expect it. Uh, I've had two different projects that are independently doing festival runs. One is a short film called uh, future boyfriend, which premiered at the 2016 Tribeca film festival, which I had never been to. And, uh, a the great ep- fest, great festival. Uh, I mean, I'd say Tribeca is on par with Sundance. It's, it's huge world-class. Yeah. yeah. No, it's like one of the best festivals in the world. And then simultaneously 20 seconds to live the web series that, uh, Bob DeRosa uh, and I, uh, created with, uh, Kat Paziak producing has been, uh, doing the festival run and we're, and we're playing a lot of web fests, which is a kind of a new phenomenon. Explain this to me. So it's stuff made for the web, but you go see it in a theater. Correct. That's exactly what it is. And it's a really weird, uh, it's a, it's an awesome experience, but it's, it's weird because, you know, when we made 20 seconds to live, the idea was you're going to watch it on a phone or you're going to watch it on your, in your Facebook feed. We didn't really have the design for it that it's going to play on a big screen. We played San Francisco web fest last year and didn't go. Unfortunately, I could kick myself now for not going. But then this year we played the Seattle web fest and then the following week, and I went to that one. And then the following week, I wasn't able to go to this one. Bob went, uh, we played Vancouver web fest and here's the deal. There's amazing work being done for the web. I sort of walked in like an arrogant pile of shit that I am. And I was like, cause we live in LA. We see a lot of people who have web series. Oftentimes I'm not going to name names, 
but we feel that the web series that people we know have are not on par with the work that we would see on television or in a movie theater. I think it's fair to say. I think that's more than fair. I mean, some are, some are great. Some aren't. I, I know someone who is, they started off not working in web at all, but like of the last eight projects they've produced, eight of them have been for the web. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the world is shifting. The world is shifting. Yeah. Quickly. Anyway, so I, I went to Seattle Web Fest kind of because exp- I'm super uh, happy with the way 20 Seconds to Live has turned out. And I expected like, you know, like, hey, everybody, you can bow down to me later and declare me your God. And then I saw the films that they had there and they were awesome. You were were you envious of these films? I mean, uh, in some cases, yeah. There was one uh, that I'll shout out to called I don't know the people who made it at all. It's called Phoenix Run, and they handed out a beautiful comic book to everyone in the audience. And inside the comic book were QR codes that you could scan with your phone that would take you to the various episodes of the show mm. that they had created. And this and the one episode that they showed uh, at Seattle Web Fest looked like a feature film. It was gorgeous and it was made by local Seattle people. Hmm. So it's like people who had in, in Seattle, they have really good gear and they have really good post houses, but obviously they don't have like all the TV actors that we have just, you know, that you trip over walking <laughs> out of your house in LA. They don't have those kinds of people. So it had to have been harder to cast. It had to have been harder to do a lot of that stuff, but it's got like great makeup effects and great all that stuff. Uh, we saw a ton of stuff that came out of Canada there are some um, incubators in Canada because there's state money for this stuff in Canada. Mm-hmm. So uh, there was one show, and I'm uh, I'm sad to say I don't remember the name of it. I could probably find it, um, but fail. I, so I, I watched a few episodes. They showed like three episodes of it at Seattle Web Fest, and then during the Q and A, I asked the filmmaker, "So are you guys doing another season of this as a web series?" And they were like, "Oh no, we're already on Canadian television." And what I came to find out was there were a couple of them. There's one called Frostbite Films, and there was one called I think Beehive. Uh, collective Hmm. and what these people do is they'll like have online contests where canadians can like write a treatment and then people who go online and vote for the one that they want to see turned into a series wow and then they get some money to go make a web series and if they get far enough with that then they might get an actual canadian tv series uh order on television and um that's novel it, well, oh, but the result is these are web series that just look like television series. They look they look gorgeous. They're just like, you know, five minute episodes of a TV show. Um, and there were a bunch of them. So uh, that was honestly fascinating. The other thing is that more film festivals are starting to open their arms to uh, playing web series. So, for instance, 20 Seconds to Live, uh, two weeks before we're recording this, played the Los Angeles Film Festival, which is a pretty prestigious festival, especially when you consider we've been um, free online for a year. Hmm. And then we got it into LA Film Festival, which again is kind of a world-class film festival. You know, it's a a big deal. And, um, you know, they get major sponsors, you know, met some great people, saw some amazing, uh, saw some amazing web series. Some of them were the same ones that I'd seen in Seattle. And there's a whole ecosystem of these web fests that are popping up. So are each of these web fests independently operated and owned or are all they, is it like uh, just regional versions of the same exact franchise? As far as I know, they're all independent. Hmm. Like I think that they're all, they're all run by different people. It's interesting because like the old, the old kid on the block of, of the web fest world is maybe four or five years old. They haven't been doing them for that long. So are we 
looking forward to instead of having film festivals pop up and say like Indianapolis and Sarasota, it's going to be web fests popping up in all these. I think places. it's both. As we're recording this, Twenty Seconds to Live is playing at the Austin Web Fest. Uh, we also got into one in Miami. It's not like uh, Austin canceled South by Southwest so they could have a web fest, hmm. or Miami is going to cancel the Miami Film Festival. Like it's just in addition to, hmm. and it's it's a it's a different world of that stuff. But the thing is that what I'm learning after having made a web series is that a web, obviously, I mean, this is an obvious thing I'm about to say, but a web series is just a different thing than a short film or a feature film or a commercial or any of the other things that you might have made that might have played a film festival. They're kind of unique in and of themselves. And one of the things that I love about web fests actually is that you, when you go to a regular film festival, you watch a bunch of films, you go home, you talk about them or you don't talk about them or whatever. When you go to a web fest, you go home and the, the series that you liked, you go watch, you go binge the whole series Hmm. and there's some really good stuff out there. And even, even the stuff that isn't as polished, sometimes you look at it and you go like, well, whoever's doing this, like it's, it's not outsider art. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing and they're learning and, and they're getting better at it and they're getting better at it a lot faster than you and I would have had an opportunity to do in the traditional film festival world in the nineties, for instance, because they can put out episodes as often as they want and they can build an audience that way. And so, yeah, there's a bunch of garbage out there. I mean, cause literally nothing is stopping anyone from making these things, including me. No one has stopped me from making these things. <laughs> but what's interesting is that what you end up getting is this uh, incubation process where people kind of find the voice of their thing and it's maybe differently structured but the best the best thing about them is like they're if, differently structured they're differently structured and they're all short they're all like i mean like if you're watching a, a web if you don't like it don't worry it'll be over real fast exactly i kind of see different divisions in web series like there are some web series that are basically comic strips there was one called the other kennedys i think and it's basically like making fun of rich, obnoxious uh, socialites on Cape Cod. And it's like these two nerdy, you know, tennis jerks. And it's funny as hell, but it's like it's a comic strip. It's each episode is like 15 seconds long and they're well made and they look good. And, you know, but it, you're not watching it. You're not watching it because it's a deep. It, it's not Lawrence of Arabia. It, it, it's more like Doonesbury, you know. And it's because you you really can do whatever the hell you want. Like you you can tell any kind of story this way. And the Cape Cod rich jerk anti defamation league is not really like you know cruising to shut these guys down. I guess not. No. <laughs> hey. Okay. So that sounds fascinating. That's amazing. But I know you weren't just at web festivals. You've been. I mean, basically, oh, well, yeah, for well, months the, you've been. Well, the big one. Well, the two big ones were. Uh, well, Florida Film Festival, where we also played Twenty Seconds to Live, and I saw um, one of my favorite and most disgusting shorts I've ever seen called Gwilliam. Wow. Can't recommend it highly enough. Is it uh, available online? It, it's not. It's available at a film festival near you. Oh, okay. um, it'll eventually be available online. Uh, the guy, do you remember the the Adult Swim uh, thing, Too Many Cooks, that came out a couple years ago? Oh, I know that you love Too Many Cooks. Yeah, I watch that a lot. <laughs> so the guy who plays like the serial killer in that is the hero in this. Mm. Uh, and I'll show it to you later because I might have, the filmmaker might have given me a Vimeo link Whoa. with the password though, okay. so I can show it to you, but I can't like uh, publish that. Yeah. Um, and then, like we said earlier, the other the big one was Tribeca. This is interesting. And I, I don't know if a lot of people realize that this is how it works. When you get into Tribeca, Tribeca is in April. They tell you in early January and you're not allowed to talk about it until March. Hmm. 
And in a way, that's a very humane thing they're doing because if you sent them a rough cut or you sent them something that even isn't fully mixed or color corrected, you have that much time to finish it. Unlike Sundance, by the way, which I feel like they tell you in the beginning of December and you have to have delivered it at the beginning of January. So, of course, you had like every holiday in the world and you were out of town and you're dead broke and you're not working. And you also had to deliver your film to Sundance. No problem. No pressure there. (laughs) But it was almost the opposite thing where it's like, I mean, like I could tell people I had told you, but I'm not going to post it on Facebook. I'm like, I can't put it anywhere publicly where where we can talk about it uh, until March. And so we kind of had to sit on this information and, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, unbelievably exciting to play there. And, and, uh, Tribeca also, in addition to being an amazing film festival, they bring in a lot of new technology. So, uh, one of the big things they were doing this year was they had a giant virtual reality, like they had a hall of different VR experiences that you could try. And so I feel like I actually kind of got to test the breadth of, the state of the art of what VR is all about right now, you know, I should say in April, it's probably changed since then. And I saw some extremely impressive things. There was one, I think it was called six by nine and it was, it was solitary confinement. So you were in a CG, a very realistically rendered CG uh, solitary confinement cell. And it was a documentary about solitary confinement. So you're, so you're in there and they told you, it's like, they sit you down they're like, you're going to be in solitary confinement for nine minutes. So be ready. And I, I didn't have any uh, issues, but I imagine maybe somebody freaked out about that at one point or another. It's like, mm-hmm. I was never not aware that I was watching a demonstration, but, but like you were hearing interview footage, uh, interview clips of people talking about being in solitary confinement or guards talking about what it's like to deal with prisoners in solitary confinement or psychologists and stats are being projected on the wall and the room is kind of aging while you're in there and kind of created a very interesting timeless environment and kind of gave me an idea of like, Oh, okay. That's, this is the kindest like virtual reality is probably its own topic for us to go into at one point. But the thing about virtual reality is the grammar, the cinematic grammar for it is being written right now. And nobody knows if it's really going to catch on and be a thing or if it's, you know, obviously it's going to be a big thing for gamers, but is it going to be a narrative storytelling device for passive I'd say slightly less passive storytelling. <laughs> I've talked to a couple of the other people about this, including someone on camera recently, but uh, God, it's, uh, I feel like I've, I'm kind of talked out on VR and I'll, I'll, I'll just make it really quickly though. I, I believe it's experiential and less, um, and less interactive, so to speak. I think that there might be a gaming component and an interactive thing that is coming, but right now what's, the stuff that's capturing people's imagination really is uh, here's an experience that you wouldn't otherwise have. Of course. So, you know, bottom of the ocean, outer space, you know. But but to me, like a lot of that stuff is like in, in the early days of filmmaking where, you know, the Lumiere brothers would set up a camera and catch a train pulling into a station and people watching it on a screen would jump out of the way. Like that's what that is. You know, put it on a drone and fly over the city, stick it on a NASCAR car as our friend Tim's has done. You know, like it's... Yeah, it's experiential. My question, okay, okay, so to me, and maybe this is, again, maybe this is a topic we go into more depth later, but I think it's interesting to talk about, um, is uh, virtual virtual reality, uh, to me, like, the world that's already set up for it is video games, because they already have to build a fully rendered 3D world, so you can look around in any direction and whatever, and so to me, it's like, uh, signed, sealed, and delivered, video games are going to be virtual reality, done from a narrative point of view, like, and I saw some really cool stuff at Tribeca where I, it started to, I could start to see how you use it narratively where they're using binaural audio and they're using, 
you know, all, all of these crazy tools. Like there was one that was an animated piece called Alumet. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. And uh, there was like a flying airship that you had to stick your face into. Like literally, like because I'm me, I'm like, how do I break this thing? So I stuck my face in it and I was like, oh, there's fully rendered CGI characters doing stuff in here. And there's animation and storytelling happening inside this thing that I wouldn't have gotten if I would have stayed back. So it's training me to stick my face around and move into stuff. That was like, that wasn't just 360 video. That was full virtual reality. You could step around things and look under things and look over things and look through things. And that was awesome. Um, and that was on the uh, HTC Vive, uh, which is like the top of the line headset that you can actually get right now. Um, but I mean, I, I saw a bunch of different things. And I guess my question is, does it ever become a narrative tool? Do you, And we may be testing it with 20 seconds to live. We're kicking around the idea of doing a 20 seconds to live episode in virtual reality just to see. The answer is no. I don't I see. I don't agree. Um, and and maybe the reason I don't agree is I come from theater and theater is a lot like virtual reality. You know, like if the, if, if, when you think about it, the, the difference is when you're shooting virtual reality, you see everything like in theater. Obviously, if you look up, you see the lighting grid. If you look down, you see your feet. You know, you see an audience. And, and if you're making a virtual reality experience that's narrative, I just think that the narrative rules will be different than filmmaking. I like to think that you're right. I would like to think that there is a space for virtual reality and there is the virtual theater sort of experience. But what I'm seeing right now is people are capturing 360 and they're giving people the opportunity to look at things that have nothing to do with the story. And then so as the filmmaker, you're either deciding, well, do I fill something in here or how do I direct attention away from all this uh, like non well, to me, non-space. How is technique? And technique comes when people start using it. I think that from the most part, and there's is some scientific research out there that supports this. People are not really ready for choose your own adventure. They're not really for serious interactivity. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a story. I'm talking about immersive storytelling because I agree with you. But I actually had a long chat with somebody who who works professionally in the VR space the other day, and I was saying like, look even for an episode of 20 seconds to live, which is like maximum three minutes long, maybe a minute and a half long. If you're doing something like that and you say, okay, I'm going to have three, three points at which the story branches three ways. Then I have to make like, I did the math. I was like, I forget what it was. It was like 21 possible endings. It was, it, it immediately mushroomed. And I was like, you know, that's fucked up. Like I, there's no way that we're going to make that. And there's a reason that, you know, when Shakespeare was, was, uh, you know, writing Macbeth, he didn't uh, make a choose your own adventure Macbeth that had, that was, you know, 5,000 pages long. You may miss, miss my point slightly with choose your own adventure. That's not actually what I'm saying is I don't like the idea of free form that I can look anywhere. So like, mm-hmm. Hey, there's action going over here, but I'm looking down where my feet would be, or I'm looking up at the lighting grid or I'm looking at wherever you're allowing someone to choose wherever they're going to be looking. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you you can't do that and you can't you can't do that really well and it's like there was a guy talking about virtual. but you but you can in theater you can you can go into any theater you can do theater in the round yes you can do these things but the the issue really is is that when you have the opportunity to look around people treat it as a novelty and they start to do that and not pay attention to necessarily what the important story points are or what's going on it's like oh wow I'm wearing this headset and I can look over here and I can look over there but don't you think that the novelty wears off after like 10 seconds it seems to me that people I keep putting it on them and they want to like look someplace else well we're still in the infancy of this stuff I mean I think that you could be standing you know in it could be like what you know late 1800s 
and you're looking at Thomas Edison's, uh, you know, prototype for the cinematograph or whatever the one that he made was and, and saying like, yeah, this is a novelty, but I don't really see it going anywhere. You know, like, yeah, it's cool to see a flip book of a, of people walking around or whatever, but I don't really care, you know, seeing a girl dance and you, and, and you don't see 15 years later, 20 years later when you have Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, you don't see, you know, another 20 years later when you have Orson Welles, you know, you don't, you don't, and you certainly don't see whatever the hell it is we're doing now. I just don't think there's anything wrong with what we're doing now. And I might be curmudgeonly and, and like Luddite. Be. Okay. So I am curmudgeonly jaded and a Luddite. That's just, you know, that, Fair that, 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 that's what it is, but they're not offering me something better right now. And the resolution is so low. And I've heard people say, Oh, you have to look at this new headset. No, no, it really looks I will. Better. I'll agree with you there. Cause even the HTC Vive, which is the top of the line right now, you, you get, you know, that they call it the screen door effect, but it's basically, if you're like when I was watching Alumet, which is again, full virtual reality, if I stepped back far enough, I could start to see the pixels. And so I ended up having to like get really close to the subjects and stare at them a lot to and like kind of loom over them in in order to see them in full resolution but the material that we're shooting um and creating for this is actually at a resolution that exceeds what the headsets can show so in 2 or 3 years the headsets will catch up well right now for the next 3 years basically 2 or 3 years i'd say that using the headset it's not the most ideal experience i'd rather actually have the goofy experience like on youtube where i get to slide the thing around and and look at a 360 video when i'm wearing the headset to me i can't help but feel like i'm having a bad experience and i'd rather well, just watch on a on a regular screen well and the conclusion i came to and i know a lot of purists will uh spit on me for saying this is i actually am fine with google cardboard for now because i think that all of the choices are substandard so google cardboard which is like 10 15 bucks on amazon is a perfectly fine way to experience it. And there are some experiences I found on uh, on YouTube. For instance, there was a documentary that I watched recently about Cuba. And the only thing that annoyed me about it was that I don't speak Spanish and everything was subtitled, but I wanted to look around at everything in Cuba because I'm in a, I'm in a city that I've never, I've never been to and that I've never even had the opportunity to go to. And so I'd want to look around and, but I would miss the subtitles. Uh, and I would argue then again that you, you are now using virtual reality not so much for storytelling, but for an experience, your experience in Cuba. And uh, well, I would say that it's a kind of documentary, but yeah, I, I agree. Well, I think that, I think that it opens up opportunities for things like that. Um, I don't know, dude, I don't know. Five years from now, we might be looking at this the way we look at the 3d craze from five years ago and saying like, yeah, it kind of came It never really got hooks into anybody. And then it went away. Yeah. I'm going to disagree. I think that, uh, this is going to stick around a lot more than 3d. I think 3d was a, a you know, uh, and I'm sure there's probably documentation of me talking about it, but not over, there were people making claims about 3D that 3D was going to be around forever and everything was going to be 3D and that. Just well, I mean, I think 3D did 3D did penetrate a little bit in that, like, you know, big blockbuster movies are, are generally released in some form of 3D now. And it also, I think, hastened the conversion to digital projection at theaters. So in a way that yeah, is either a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at that. I see it as a good thing. Um I, I sort of look at the stuff and I, I think that, okay, so I remember the year at NAB, I want to say it was, uh, 2011 or 2010. It was the year Avatar came out. Maybe it was 2009. I remember going there and that was the year that everyone had a giant boner for 3d, but it was all the manufacturers and the companies and they were pushing 3d down our throats. And it was like, yeah, buy a 3d TV and sit around your house wearing your 3d glasses, watching, you know, sharks in 3d in your house. 
And I'm like, nobody's going to do that. And the filmmakers were all like, please, God, tell me this is not what I have. I don't want to have to hire a stereographer or become a stereographer. I don't want to have to think about interocular distance. And I don't want to think about convergence. Like this is not, I, I did not get into this game to be doing all this math. I was told that there would not be math involved. And, um, and it turns out there's math. <laughs> there's there's a good deal of math. Um, but anyway, it, it's not that 3D died a thousand deaths, but I think 3D kind of settled into the bucket that it was meant for, which is, you know, it's an extra gimmick. It's a gimmick. It's a gimmick for a big movie. And then every once in a while, a movie like Gravity will come along that really knows how to use it. Uh, I would. Didn't you also tell me that Ghost Rider was the best use of 3D? No, no, not Ghost Rider. No, no, you're completely wrong. It was Drive Angry 3D, which is another. It's another Nicolas Cage movie, but Drive Angry 3D. Real. I'm. I. It. You're not kidding. You're serious. When Nicolas Cage makes a Nicolas Cage movie, oh, Drive (laughs) Drive Angry was. It was like eating a whole cheesecake and then having a cheesecake for dessert afterwards. It was so good. Um. Anyway. Um, I'm not, I'm not walking that back. I'm, I'm proud of drive angry 3d and I didn't even have anything to do with it. All right. So, so Ben, we have talked about all kinds of stuff uh, so far in our little intro here, but I do want to plug the backlight tour. Cause actually some you're doing, you're killing it with those, by the way, oh, man. Thank you so much. Well, Hey, uh, you know, I, I got to do something while you're you know traveling the nation well, and, uh, you yeah, know, being important at Tribeca being arrogant and important they, you know, I got to do something. Look, so. I'm arrogant all the time. I don't, I don't need an excuse. Well, Hey, in the last episode we did the nab episode i had some really great people come on and talk about uh nab so we don't even need to cover nab if you go and watch the backlight tour please watch it yeah it's a it's a video podcast you also get to hear some some real industry experts talk about things like vr and talk about like the state of the industry so the same stuff we're talking about right now but you know way i think better than what we're doing and it's all it's all in five minutes so and we've easily talked for five minutes about we've easily talked for like 25 minutes okay so let's talk about today's show roberto schaefer Roberto, fantastic, fantastic DP. Holy crap. Roberto Schaefer is just an amazing get. And uh, he's uh, a nice, cool, humble guy. We, we shot at his house. You might hear his dog barking once or twice in the, in the thing. He has shot. Uh, he has such an eclectic uh, career. He's, he starts in the 80s with music videos. He works for uh, Zolomon King on the Red Shoe Diaries. <laughs> I love that. It's so it's so funny because it's yeah, anyway, uh, you know, because like nothing like that exists today. And uh, you know, then ends up working with Mark Forrester. Has shot uh, pretty much every movie Mark Forrester's made. Um, and Christopher Guest. And Christopher Guest. He shot all of Christopher Guest movies. And so you've got the same guy shooting, uh, Waiting for Guffman and James Bond in Quantum of Solace. Like the the breadth of his stuff is pretty amazing. And it was. One of the things to me that was interesting in talking to him and even just in kind of reviewing his work before going to interview him was trying to find like, what is the thread between all of those things? I mean, I understand that DPs are often hired guns, but I think when you get to the level where you're making monsters ball, you don't, you don't just go out and get a hired gun to shoot monsters ball. You get somebody who has an artistic approach to it. And he has a a really great working relationship with Mark Forrester, which he went over with us a lot. Yeah, it, it, it's an amazing range of work that he's done and just a super nice guy. So I think without further ado, here is Roberto Schaefer. We say further ado every time. Yeah, okay, we'll change that. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Thank you again for doing this. Um, You're welcome. Before we even start, uh, where can people find you online? Do you have a website, Twitter, Instagram? I have an Instagram. I have two Instagrams. One is more of my personal, just mm-hmm. sort of every day off the hip shots and what is it uh, that is 19 lefty 69 
And my other one, which is more of my arty, more composed thought of pictures is Ganzo 69. So there's a question that I kind of ask everyone, and it's mostly because of my curiosity. The question is, I, I tend to see that cinematographers either come from a lighting background or uh, a camera background, obviously. But I feel when I talk to them, I feel like some people for some for some cinematographers, the main focus is the lighting and finding a composition within the lighting that they've already done. And then some some cinematographers are very compositionally focused. And I understand that, you know, like whenever you're working, you're working for a director, you're working for a client. They're maybe telling you what they want in the shot. But like, where where do you start? Like, where does the image start for you? Does it start with lighting or does it start with framing? I can't separate the two, really. Mm -hmm. It's sort of maybe I'd say it starts first with framing only because I see the framing in my brain before anything else has happened. You know, I, I can frame it. I, I see it. when I walk around, I'm going to start like from, from high school and you know, walking around looking at everything I looked at, framing things continuously. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, yeah, framing probably comes a couple of milliseconds before the lighting because it's, it's so totally integral because your framing can be anything. And then if the lighting doesn't complement or make the framing work or make have it make sense, then then I sort of, you know. When, and when I, when I look that. at your work, I see a lot of stuff that's very compositionally focused, specifically like Monster's Ball, mm-hmm. I think is like out, like the composition was when I saw that movie, I think I walked out of there thinking more about the way the shots have been composed than maybe anything else. Yeah. Uh, composition is extremely important to me. Framing is extremely important to me. And I was you know, a camera operator on every movie through Finding Neverland. And then I, as we started doing bigger, bigger movies and having a really great Steadicam operator join me, Jim McConkey. He didn't want to do it unless he would be a camera operator too. Mm. And I decided it was worth handing it over to him and, and, you know, getting a good rapport with him. So he would do the kind of framing and do what I need. And he's great. You know, he knows what he's doing, but not everybody, even if they know what they're doing, not everybody sees or is able to see the same that you do. Yeah. And um, I mean, I had experience with a, a guy who I bumped up from assistant to operator on a movie that we're starting a, a low budget movie in Texas. And, um, we start shooting and I'm, I see what he's, the frame he's doing on the monitor. And I go, no, 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 come on. You know, this is go from here and to here, too much headroom and don't put the guy in the middle and all this stuff. And, um, okay. Then that take, he, he did that. And then the next take after he goes right back to the, mm-hmm. and he, he said to me, I said, what are you, what are you doing? I just told you how it should be free you know, how I want the frame. And he goes, it's really important to me. It's not just the start. It's not just the end. It's every frame in between. It really you know, every frame, you should be able to stop on every frame and like the composition. And he goes, oh, I was just trying to make good framing. And I said, "That's." A, I made the same face. I went, oh, so you think what I do is bad framing? It's oh, it's the framing that I want. It's my taste. It's what I'm asking for. You know, yeah. you have to. So, but people see things. I mean, there are, there are base basics in, you know, framing and composition that sort of, you know, the learn, you know, the rules, you know, what's considered beautiful framing for portraits or for this or for that or for landscapes. And then you know where to bend them depending on the emotion you're trying to get across. Yeah. If you're trying to, you know, you know, cliches, a lot of it is cliche, but cliches exist because they're, they're real. They work, you know, like uh, putting somebody into the corner of the frame, making them feel lonely and small or, you know, the lower looking up at them, the, the heroic, all those things. And they all work because the audiences at least still, I don't know how much longer to last, but our audiences still do have a a language of cinema. Yeah, and when they see these things, they whether consciously or subconsciously, they get the information. They get the story you're telling them. They get the power of 
the image that's saying, this is the good guy. He doesn't have to wear a white hat or a black hat. He's the good guy. He's the bad guy. Or this is a, you know an important moment. Or this person's you know alone and nervous and mm-hmm. just reinforcing you know doing what a cinematographer's supposed to do: reinforce the story with with the images. And so, the lighting goes hand in hand with that. Uh, so that very much brings me to another another really kind of foundational thing that I think a lot of conversation kind of comes out of. Uh, somebody hands you a script. They're going to hire you for a job, or they're meeting with you about it. Who are they? I want to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's me. You don't, oh, okay. you don't want to meet with me. It's okay. okay really? Um, you know, but so, so you're meeting with somebody about, about a new project. Uh, they give you a script. Uh, how do you go about kind of creating the, the visual language? Cause again, again, I, I really see in your work, a strong visual language that it feels like every one of your films that I've seen has, has kind of that. It feels like there are rules, even if I don't understand them as an audience. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about doing that? Um, well, my history is particular in that I did nine movies pretty much in a row with Mark Forster mm-hmm. and our relationship started where he was brand new out of out of NYU and I had some experience doing, you know, feature work and things and we met and I did his first feature and took it all the way up to just before we're up. Into what was, what feature was that? The first one was called loungers mm-hmm. and it was shown at the slam dance film festival. Oh wow. With the first slam dance. And it won the audience award and it never got shown again because they didn't have the music rights <sighs> and they couldn't get them. They were too expensive. It was Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. And, and it was like musically driven. So the you whole keep- thing, it was about guys who want to be lounge singers in a, you know, built around this, this uh, mystery murder kind of uh-huh. story, comedy thing based on a play, but without, without the music, you know, they couldn't, they were doing lip syncing to all this, you know, uh, Tom Jones shit. and Frank Sinatra. So, um, so that one never got shown again. I don't think I do have a copy of it, but it's, you can't, I don't think you can really show it anywhere. Um, <laughs> and then sucks. the second one we did was called everything put together, mm-hmm. which then, uh, that was, that was at Sundance. And I'm assuming they got the mu- the music rights that time around. Yeah. They did it right that time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they had, um, they had, uh, we shot that on mini DV. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was the time when people were starting to experiment with, with early video. And we did that around the same time that I think it was Miguel Arteta did uh, Chuck and Buck. I, I was I saw Chuck yeah. and Buck at Sundance. And for some reason, Chuck and Buck got a little more press than we did, although we won two awards at Sundance. It's because it's year. fun to say Chuck and Buck suck and fuck. I, I it's, guess, it's just catchy. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And everything put together was a serious story about a woman who loses her baby and uh, SIDS. You know, the, oh, yeah. And her friends who then abandon her and won't talk to her because they're they have babies and they all feel like it's some sort of you know bad juju and yeah. and it's done sort of like a creepy horror film but not really. But we were experimenting with mini DV and and shot that on a I forget I think it was a PD one hundred a one fifty maybe it was a one fifty it was a PAL yeah. camera yeah and uh, we had uh, we shot it at um, twenty four frames but on the PAL camera and we had Swiss effects did a thirty five millimeter blow up from it. And look? it was interesting. You know, it's interesting. It's got video artifacts. It, it's, you yeah. Know, you, but we were not trying to make it look like film. We were trying to use for what we could the, the video I, I thought that there was like, yeah, right around that time, there were movies like Personal Velocity. Yeah. That was afterwards, I believe. Yeah. That was, and I think Indigent made that, but that was still, that. I think that yeah. was shot on a PD-150. Um, uh, obviously, Chuck and Buck. Well, we, we talked to, um, I forget, what was his name at, at Swiss Effects at the time? I have all the correspondence from we just we were just in touch with them and Mark being Swiss mm-hmm. had you know some connection with them and uh, they gave us a really good deal and they were telling us you know suggesting which 
things to use. We did some tests and it absolutely made sense to shoot in PAL because it was just a much cleaner image than. Yeah. That's what everyone was doing. Or that's what a lot of interpolation and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we did that and indigent, I think came around after ours was done. Um, another film like right around that time that was mini DV, probably the first one that convinced everyone that mini DV was a thing you could do was the celebration, uh, Thomas Vinterberg right. celebration, right? which like that movie, I don't feel like I've ever been so like emotionally wrapped up in a movie yeah. and, and the mini DV look was actually part of what it totally made sense yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Up until then, had you been primarily working with like 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter? 35 and 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I shot video back in the day when I had to shoot, you know, like cheap commercials and things. And I shot some video in Italy. Um, and then I shot uh, a little bit of video. Well, actually earlier, before I moved to Italy, I shot some uh, feature news for Switzerland. And originally we were shooting all our feature news stuff for Europe on Super 16 or 16 millimeter. Not Super, it was 16, straight 16 at the time. Yeah. Um, shot for like almost every European network. Really? When I was li- living in New York. And then... What, about what year would that Oh, happen? that was 1978 through 1981. So it's like bef- so. like around the time the conversion to video was happening, but maybe a little bit. Before. Yeah, it was starting. And for, for the Swiss, for... Uh, for both Swiss channels, or all three of them actually, we worked with a French Swiss um, journalist, but he was he dealt for all the channels. Mm-hmm. And then we had a couple of people came in for some special things. But we were shooting Umatic, uh, but high band mm-hmm. uh, because it was for Europe. So we would buy, you know, we'd get high band recorders and high band cameras. I don't even know what that Ikigamis. is. It was basically like the difference between 24 and 25 frame mm-hmm. NTSC versus PAL. The high band just it was a, a better recording resolution. And then I went to Italy and I shot my first feature on Super 16. Mm-hmm. Um, Chinachita, I just bought an Aton LTR 50 Super 16 with a set of super speeds. And I shot a low budget feature with that. Was that was that the reason you went to Italy? That was one of the reasons I went to Italy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I loved it over there. I'd gone to uh, the Venice Film Festival many times before that. Mm-hmm. A couple of girlfriends over there uh, from New York uh, that I met in New York that lived, you know, that were Roman. So I would go back and forth and eventually one of the girls that I knew over there asked me to come over and shoot a film for her. So I did that. And How long were you there? 10 years. Nice. Not just for that one movie, but it felt, Obviously. It felt like it. But Some of them yeah. feel like they go yeah. that long. Um, and so we shot that Super 16. And then the next film I did over there, uh, I shot all 35. 35 Fuji Color was the first one. The second one was 35 Agfa Black and White. And in the meantime, I started shooting music videos and commercials and other stuff. Now, and now pretty much everything was 35. Now, let's back up a little bit. Had you gone to film school? Uh, no, I went to art school. Nice. I, went to, I studied fine arts at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and um, minored in photography, majored in conceptual art, which we were allowed to do at the time. Wow. Is that um, where you sit around and just think about art? Yeah. You, you, you come up with <laughs> things in your mind and you do drawings and you come up with concepts of Things. And some things were, were, were actually, you could actually um, have documentation of it. Mm-hmm. And other things were just like a, an event. Really? Yeah. And I did some, some landscape sculpture, uh, location dependent um, installations, things like that. That's cool. It was great. Yeah, I really loved it. And then at some point I realized that I probably could never make a living doing that because it's hard enough for anybody to be making living as an artist mm-hmm. um and that that part of art was really difficult and there's a few people who made it chris burden 
uh, Vito Acconci, a few others like that. But, you know, it was a small. Yeah. Yeah. So. So you moved into the much so sa- safer, safer film business. The, the film business. <laughs> and that also came about through a series of coincidences of somebody I knew that knew me. And I mm-hmm. had once been in a TV commercial when I was a teenager with my friend, my best friend's sister, who was an actress. Blah, blah, blah. I went and met with the commercial production company and they asked me if I wanted to. I, they said they would hire me. So I started working. They said they'd hire you. As if, a, if, they, said, they said, come back after Thanksgiving wearing dirty clothing. Or clothes <laughs> that you don't mind getting dirty. Because I was basically, you know, it was a stagehand. Yeah, it was, yeah. You do everything. It was a non-union commercial house in New Rochelle, New York. Mm-hmm. And um, I basically learned everything there though. You know. So did you, be, so did you start shooting while you were working there? I started shooting the news stuff on the side, mm-hmm. uh, but while I was working there, no, I was I was um, basically doing grip and electric and humping things and building sets and moving stuff. And you know, they really didn't let me into the camera department. They were very snotty about it, uh, very tight. <laughs> there was one guy who was the assistant, and he didn't want anybody else in there helping him. And then he had a, another guy who was an assistant who was probably better than him, but he was the he was African-American, so he was definitely not going to be the the first. He was definitely the second. Uh, um, and then um, I got out of there and went away. And I mean, a, a brief history of my time. I went away and, and moved to Cape Cod and lived on the beach for four years and discovered that I really did like movie making. And mm-hmm. worked on a 16-millimeter feature in Provincetown. Met the DP up there. And when it was done, he said, come to New York. If you really like doing movies, come to New York and I'll help you out. So I moved to New York like four months later and started working with him as an assistant um, on these European feature news stuff. And, and what was his name? His name was Flip McCarthy. Mm-hmm. He's the son of Kevin McCarthy. Oh, wow. Really? Of um, Invasion of the Body Invasion Snatchers. Invasion of Body Snatchers fame, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like every uh, Joe Dante film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was in Piranha. Yeah. yeah he was a great guy. And uh, Flip was really, really good and did it we traveled all over the country shooting news for the Dutch still around? And the Swiss. You know, Flip got out of the business. He decided to write screenplays and he wanted to direct and he and his dad put one together and they couldn't ever get the financing. Oh, man. He pushed on for years with it and he actually produced a one of the first um, films for um, PBS, like movie of the week, but for, yeah. for PBS. He did one about Jamestown, the, uh, mm. the first settlement in uh, in Ro- or Roanoke it was called oh. Roanoke um, the one where everyone disappeared yeah, right exactly and then uh, eventually he got out of the business and moved to San Diego and is in by he became a he got a master's or doctorate in in uh, chemical waste management and is doing that in San Diego very happily well that yeah. sounds like a not unintelligent move yeah exactly wow so yeah. but so he brought you under his wing right and, and then what, he decided he didn't want to shoot anymore. So he said to one day, he just told me and all his clients, he says, he's shooting from now on. I'm going to write a screenplay. <laughs> so I got his, his, uh, his uh, Eclair ACL. Oh, sweet. And um, started shooting all the stuff for, for Italian television, for the French and the Germans and everybody. But I'm assuming that you had some affinity for shooting up until then. I guess I did. You know, I must have had some, <laughs> you know, I, I'd done still photography and I'd yeah. done, I mean, I had done the typical Sort of, it's sort of a real cliche. Everybody has said it. When I was like ten years old, I had my dad's eight millimeter camera, and with my friends, we made some little movies, and you know, all different types of movies, yeah. dramas, adventures, chases, and different things. And then in high school, got hold of some Super Eight cameras because they came out and started doing art movies and like double exposure stuff and 
all kind of you know crazy arty things. But is um, that like while when you were in art school, were you doing that? Kind and of in stuff? art school, I started doing. I was doing on my own Super Eight and sixteen millimeter mm-hmm. um, art movies, precursors to music videos. I would get inspired by some music, and I'd say I want to do a film to go to that music. Mm-hmm. And so I did some to a Jefferson Airplane song and a Pink Floyd song and some other, <laughs> and Frank Zappa and the Mothers. You still have any of those? I do. I do actually. Uh, Jeff Krines, who has Kinetta, mm-hmm. um, his oh, wow. transfers. I actually sent all my films to him last year and had him transfer everything for me. So I got a really good transfer oh, on Oh, cool. Them. And I'm still trying to work out syncing the sound to them because I don't have a real editing system. But, oh. <laughs> so I've got them, though. I can talk you through good. it. Totally. Uh, that's interesting. I remember when the Kinetta was going to be a camera and then it, yeah. then it just wasn't, right. I was yeah. very bummed out. Yeah. He did some beautiful stuff though. With it. Yeah. It yeah. Really no, I was, cool. I was really excited about yeah. it. Um, so, okay. So, so you go to art school, then, then you bum around Cape Cod for four years. Then you hook up with, uh, I'm, uh, Flip, Flip McCarthy, Flip McCarthy, Flip McCarthy. Um, and, and I think I've got your chronology. So you end up in New York for a while, then you move to, uh, Italy and you're shooting features and but stuff in New York. When I was working for this production, I went back to New York and I was helping flip and working with him and shooting stuff for the Swiss at the same time we met with the, the guy, mm-hmm. um, through an Italian friend of mine who knew him. And then at the same time, I got offered a job back with the same production company that I'd worked for that uh, freelance company. Uh, I mean the, the non-union studio commercial studio and they did mostly toy commercials so they called me and said do you want to come back and uh, help our location manager or our yeah he was location manager uh, no he was a he was sorry he was the uh, production manager help him out for a few months during toy season toy mm-hmm. fair season because it's really busy so i said okay i'll come back i'll be an assistant production manager and i assisted him for the that season and then at the end of that season they let him go and then like two months later three months later they called me and said do you want to come back and take over that job so I did. I went back because it was a paycheck. It was pretty good for the time. Um, I'm still freelance, so I could go off and do things whenever other things came up. And um, eventually I ended up producing for five years TV wow. commercials. And I realized I really didn't like producing. It's a bummer. It was a headache. Yeah. It was just, I didn't, and I didn't get the pleasure out of it that some producers hopefully do. There are people who love it and yeah. I always think it's yeah. kind of a shit taco. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I just, you know, I, it's just a different thing. It's always chasing after the stupid details and that, being the, the asshole because yeah. you get put in that position. And, and because I produced for five years and because I've also done gripping and gaffing and uh, set dressing and set building and all that stuff, Maybe it's you know the dangerous thing, the jack of all trades. That I know how all those things work, and I've seen it, and I've done it all, and I know how the producing works. I know when they're lying to me. Yeah, they can't. I know when they're you. bullshitting, and I know you know with a, it's and it's like, and then I know especially then when the producer comes over and tries to tell me how to hang and light a blue screen and what I really need to do it. Oof. Then it's like you know, I'm not telling you how to do, even though I could tell you how to do your job. I'm not. I'm, not. I'm refraining. Why don't you refrain? I'm from not telling, telling you how to set yeah. up your Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. You you yeah. let me do the blue screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's crazy. So sorry. And there every- are some great. There are great producers. I have some really good friends who yeah. are producers and, and production managers and line producers. Oh my god! And some of them that are heinous. There are people that I would you know I would. Well, the good ones are are worth. Yeah, they're worth. Oh, they're, they're, worth they're worth. They're so amazing. They're everybody's weight in gold. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They make the world keep moving and yeah. they keep you from wanting to kill yeah. yourself yeah. every day or get out of the business and yeah. find something else to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like. like uh, rebuild old classic cars or something 
My, my, my dream is always to like, I don't know why, but it's always like to move to Cancun and open up a bike shop. Like that's, that's my weird. Mine was to move to Tahiti and open up a jazz bar. Nice. So yeah. we could yeah. be not that far from each yeah. other and I could bike over yeah. and you could have somebody play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, well, okay. So let me ask you, and I, 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 I don't know if I got far enough with my progression of, um, no, no, you totally bike. did. And so shot the movies in Italy and then I decided I was working with Anthony Hoffman, who's a director cameraman here. Mm-hmm. He's quite, he was with propaganda and with Kukaloris before that and radical media. Um, very successful. Does a lot of car stuff now. Um, he and I were friends in Milano. We met there. He came over and started working there, doing commercials and music videos and stuff. And I started working with him. We became good friends. And one day he, he had moved here, moved back here. And he had gone to a- AFI. And one day I remember he, a couple of years later, he called me and says, just, just come back just come, or come over to California. Let's try it. You got to give it a try. You got it. We, we talked about it for years. Had you we, lived in California? I never lived in California. My sister went to school at UCLA for, for her second master's, um, but I had only visited here. Well, let me ask you something. I think, I think this yeah. is kind of interesting because you, you sort of organically hooked into kind of a production field that, that appealed to you. But it sounds like, for the most part, you were kind of a cameraman for hire, more yeah, or less. Yeah, yeah. At what point did you say, "No, I'm I'm going to be a cinematographer now, and and I'm going to be a, a, a very intentional cameraman"? Well, I I guess, I mean, I started doing cinematography still in New York, even though you know I did the feature news stuff. I also shot some short films for friends mm-hmm. as a cinematographer. You know, I was lighting and I was framing and I was operating and doing all that. And then when I went to Italy, I, the first thing I did was shoot a movie as a, as a DP. Um, and then so I was to, it at that point that you would, that you basically said like, this, I enjoy it. This is, this is my career. This, path. Is, this is where I want to go with it. This is what I like doing. Yeah. Um, but I also said, I really like living in Rome and yeah. whatever I have to do to stay here, I'm going to do. So I did some, you know, and there wasn't that much work. So I did work. I worked as an extra on a few films. Uh, I was in once upon a time in America. Really? Yeah. In, in, in the, such a way that biggest, we can, that we can oh, see. Oh, yeah, I'm recognizable. There are a few, a few, few shots. I'm right behind De Niro's head. Oh, wow. Um, if what, you, what scene? Yeah, well, if you watch the funeral for uh, Prohibition scene where they have the, the dirge in the bar and everything, mm-hmm. I am the only person in the entire scene wearing glasses. I had wire rim glasses from my grandfather. And the first AD was from Naples, who later got arrested for smuggling marijuana from Jamaica <laughs> on the way back from shooting in Detroit or Miami. Um, um, Salvo, he came up to says, you know, you got to lose the glasses. And I couldn't see, you know, that far in front of me if I lost them. I said, no, they're period glasses. They're from, you know, from the 19... 19- okay, okay. So <laughs> I got to wear them. So that's how you can definitely see me doing the tango and doing a few nice. things in there. So it was fun. Whenever you know an great. extra in a scene, like I know a guy who was an extra in LA Confidential in the big cop brawl uh-huh. scene. And whenever I watch that scene, all I can see is it's Vance. Him. It's Vance, Vance, right. Vance. And a friend of mine is an, is an extra in Miller's Crossing in one of the scenes. And again, like whenever I it's like he's in a long line of hoods and it's like, there's John Drackett. Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you know? Uh, that, well, that, in Italy, everybody is professional. I mean, the extras are professional. It's like they, you see the same extras in every movie, basically. Mm-hmm. And of course, this one, they wanted a lot of American looking faces because it took place in America. And that's how I got cast through it. An American friend who was, who knew a lot of the, who knew the producer and some other people. And so, yeah. And got in. And I had a great time on that show because I got to sit in the trailer and eat lunch with all the, who all shot the that? American actors. Tonino Delicali. And were you like watching him? Watch, yeah, I was yeah. watching him as much as I could. 
Um, did you pick, pick up any cool tricks? I off did. Them? Yeah, especially stuff at the time that nobody else was doing, like shooting redheads into pieces of styrofoam just all over the place to do little bounce lights and stuff. And we're here. Everybody was still using pretty much Fresnel hard lights, you know, direct stuff. Yeah, that movie um, does have a real naturalistic yeah, look. Yeah, yeah. It was, and it was, it was great. It was really fun. So that was really good. And then I needed to work more, so I moved to, to Milano and started doing commercials. And then a friend, just by coincidence, a friend here in, in well, here a friend in New York called me one day and said, "Do you know anybody who wants to buy a Steadicam really cheap?" And I said, "I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so." Because I knew Ted Churchill and his brother um, back in 1976. I met them at a Thanksgiving dinner or 77 Thanksgiving dinner when they both had gotten their first new Steadicams and they had written the, you know, the manual of style, I guess came out in 1980 or something. And I remember sitting with Ted at that, at that dinner and he said, um, I said, what are, you know, Steadicam, what's, it's cool. I, you know, I see what you do with it. It's really cool. What do you think about, you know, to be an operator for that? He says, if you want to be a Steadicam operator, you have to do nothing and want nothing else in your life. You have to marry it. You have to sleep with it. You have to eat with it. You have to breathe and dream Steadicam. Wow. And I just said, well, I guess that's not for me. <laughs> but then this friend called and said, you know, anybody wants a cheap Steadicam? And I didn't ask them the particulars of why it You're was like, available. I'd like to eat and breathe but, and drink Steadicam from now but on. But I thought, how much? And he said it was like $5,000 or something. That's crazy cheap even today. Yeah. For and it was a Model 1, mm-hmm. but still. The Model 2 had just come out, I think. And... um so I talked to a few friends. I said, do you want to, you guys want to, do you want to go in on it? And one guy said, I'll go in on it with you. Another person said, well, maybe we'll take it. And then I said, wait a second, I'm going to find that money. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to learn to use it. And maybe it'll help me get more work in Italy as a Steadicam operator. Cause there were only three other Steadicams in Italy at the time. Mm-hmm. So I bought it, borrowed, I think some money from my mom and uh, my, both my parents and bought the thing and reworked it and fixed it up. And Garrett showed me how to cut it in pieces and make it so it could bend and do things because it had a fixed monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a workshop with Garrett um, and a few of the big guys at the time. Um, two workshops I did in Italy. First was a workshop and then the master's class with them. And uh, got to be pretty good at it. And I got a lot of work with it. And it sort of like got me into places that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten. But I still wanted to be a DP. I didn't mm-hmm. want only to be doing that. So when I left Italy and came over and Anthony said, come to the United States and see if you can make it work. Come to LA. I'll try to help you. Um, I used the Steadicam maybe five times. And then I just said, you know, this is, I don't want to be doing that. That's interesting. So how, how many years would you say? Seven. Seven, seven like, years of Steadicam. Where you were that with, where you were a Steadicam yeah, op and that I was, was your main a Steadicam gig. Operator, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I once put, I, I've never operated a Steadicam, but I was working on this film once and they had a Steadicam op named Mike Smith. This is in Atlanta. And I was asking him, we were shooting on a movie cam mm-hmm. and I was, I, I started out. Was, was it a, movie cam America or, a, or the <laughs> SL? I don't, uh, I couldn't tell you. It, this, this, this is a compact. This is like 1995. So yeah. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. And I was in the makeup department, but I asked him about it and he's like, well, you want to put it on? And I was like, sure and you know i'm like six foot one and i'm not a weak person but i've never felt such intense pain in my lower back ever it was like having a horse standing on my lower back and i've always been i've always admired the fact that you know steadicam ops because it was it was a big camera it was i don't think it was a compact it was a pretty big camera yeah well the worst the worst one that i had to do was for an american tv movie it was uh called coins in the fountain it was a remake of three coins in the fountain it was with lonnie anderson and jacqueline smith and another actress who I cannot remember, unfortunately. And Tony Immy was the DP, British guy. 
and Tony Wamby was the director, both Brits. And we're shooting in Rome, and I was hired to be the Steadicam operator slash operator. So I was like a camera and Steadicam. And they had a movie cam Super America. And I don't know if you know in Rome, the steps at the, the Capitoline steps were the city hall basically is the old thing. They've got this staircase that goes up from Piazza del Popolo basically to the top of the Capitoline. And the stairs are probably, you know, each step is like one, like a double normal step. It's that high. Mm-hmm. It was, I don't know how the Romans ever did that, how they ever walked like that, but it was an incredible steep climb. And I remember this scene having to go down the stairway backwards. Oh my God. With the three of them tracking down and then, okay, back to take 10, carry it back up, back down again with this Super America, which was a ridiculously heavy camera. So then they replaced it with the BL4, which was not much better, actually yeah. almost heavier, I think. So it was it was tough stuff, but it was you know it was a it was a good it was a good discipline and a good way to get to get into the business. And you worked with a lot of different DPs, I assume. Yeah. And did you now? Let me ask when you were when you were doing Steadicam, opting for other DPs, were you again were you kind of able to study what they were doing, or were you just so busy doing your own thing? Pretty much too busy. To, yeah. You know, and suffering, <laughs> trying to trying not to throw my back out. Going um, going to the chiropractor. Because I remember I worked with Oliver Woods on a Kleenex. Scottex commercial, mm-hmm. and I did um, a movie with uh, Gabby Beristain, uh, part of a movie called Aria, which he did one one episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did I the inter- the interstitial episodes. Oh, okay, of the cool. whole movie with um, John Hurt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I did Steadicam with him in Cremona, and uh, and then I got my big break into the music video world. I did a U two video, which I actually did was the DP and Steadicam on. Which one was that? It was called All I Want Is You, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it was black and white and it made a big splash. It was pretty, pretty big. So that's when doing a music video could like really make somebody's yeah. career. Yeah. Music videos were kind of the, the pulse of culture yeah. for a while there. Absolutely. It's sad to see how they just are not at all. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend the other day who did some work, Amy Vincent, who worked with, uh, she was doing some operating with Daniel Pearl. And I was shocked to see how many music videos Daniel's still shooting and some really big ones like Taylor Swift and those well, that's because kind of, kind of the upper, upper class yeah. of music videos are still going and people yeah. like him are still going to be shooting. Yeah. So, uh, well, any other music videos? That, Cause like this is stuff. I was oh yeah, I did. For. I did, um, uh, Desiree, mm-hmm. the famous, um, you gotta be that black and white one with her moving around. I like, think it, I then got, that one. it then got copied for as an AT&T commercial. Oh boy. Um, I did. Did, Britain, uh, did they have the decency to hire you to shoot the AT and T commercial? Nor, the, nor me, nor the director. That's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to steal somebody's copied, idea, copied it almost exactly. Then just get yeah. the people who did it the I first know. time. They, I know. they, they need to make money yeah. and stuff. Yeah, and then um, I don't know. I did a lot of music videos. I'm trying to remember the other bands, and I shot you know live concert stuff with Duran Duran and a lot of European bands. I did a lot of work while I was in Milano. I was still doing, still living there. I was doing a lot of work in England. Mm-hmm. every month going over and doing music videos did like five music videos for Billy Bob Thornton when he came out with his first album when he was still <laughs> married to Angie oh really yeah oh wow um, and then um, so like post Sling Blade though right post Monsters Ball oh okay yeah it was just right after Monsters Ball oh cool um, God, there's so I did so many of them I can't even think of the half the names uh, uh, Alana Miles I did two with her oh wow I did the woman from the Go-Go's um Belinda Carlisle. Belinda Carlisle. I did one with her. Um, I did one with Eartha Kitt and uh, Patti LaBelle. I did with Stevie Wonder. So uh, would you say that, of, like, when you came back to the States, do you think you fell into kind of the loop of music videos? And was that was that your mainstay That for was one? sort of the way to get in it at the beginning. It was music videos and, and some uh, lower budget commercials. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then I met Mark and we did loungers. And then uh, I met Chris Guest and I got hired, you know, just on an interview call and did Waiting for Guffman. Mm-hmm. And that was like 96, 95, somewhere around there. It had to, <laughs> this is, well, when you shot, it was probably before then, but like I was a projectionist at an art house theater in Orlando screening Waiting for Guffman in probably 96. Yeah, I, I think we say. shot it in 95. Yeah, yeah. In, in, around Austin, Texas. And, um, and you know, with Chris, it just kept being a really good relationship. And I did, so did three pictures with him, so, a lot so, of commercials and TV shows. But let's back up for a second. Yeah. So, so you're doing the music video stuff. Are you trying to push to get into features? Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to push and I had an agent mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to get me in that way. And uh, I got the Red Shoe Diaries. Mm-hmm. And then another Red Shoe Diaries, which was a help to doing showing. So know, is that sort dramatic. of sort of like a, a baby step between music videos and yeah. and regular narrative? Yeah, because it was it was um, what? it was dramatic. You know, what was storytelling? It? Somewhat. I mean, that, that's like a world that kind of doesn't exist anymore. Those kinds of shows. Like, what was that like to work on that? Was it super fast? Who's the guy who made that? Was it Solomon King? Solomon King. Yeah. It was interesting because it was my first introduction to real television, and I didn't know that you know you answer to the producer, not to the director. So it sounds like there's a story in there about about yeah there's a there's a there's a bit of a story if, if you'd prefer not to tell it, that's okay. I can tell it it was I do remember when we were shooting Peter Kerr was directing and we were down in San Pedro at this abandoned diner that had been set up and we were outside and I don't remember the exact circumstance but Peter was saying he wanted to do this shot and, you know we should then push we should dolly in and do this thing and get this coverage and Zalman was sitting with his his right hand man Rafi. Uh, back in their director's chairs, looking at the monitor and going, um, thing, saying, Peter, we don't need that, Peter. We don't need that. Just, Peter said, but I need, you know, if we're going to, we need to have this for the dialogue. And he says, we'll lose those pages. We don't need that. And I got off the dolly and I walked over to Zalman and I really believe that we should do that shot or set up for the coverage to get this. I said, I really think that Peter has a point that we really should be. And Zalman just looked at me and says, Get the fuck back on the dolly and do your job. Wow. And I said, okay. And I never tried to, you know, second guess him again because he just didn't want to hear it. Wow. And it was if we lose the pages and we don't have the dialogue, we just shoot some TNA and 300 millimeter lens <laughs> TNA and stick it in and everybody's happy. It seems like there aren't really moguls in the way that he was a mogul of a certain kind of movie anymore, you know? Yeah, he was definitely the mogul of that softcore. Yeah world that I actually liked him. He was, a, he was a good guy. Yeah. He really was. He lived not too far from here. And, um, he just, you know, had his way of working formula, the formula. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, so that was, that was a way in. And then I did two movies for Showtime for television. They had a series called drive-in classics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at this point, have you, have you transitioned completely out of doing music videos and now you're, no, most... no, there was still, it was mm-hmm. still going on, you know, and I was still needing to make money. So now, uh, jobs not I to keep get. backing up to the music video thing, yeah. but I think it's it's an interesting moment in time that's that's kind of passed. But like music videos, I feel like for the longest time, were sort of like on the cutting edge of of every visual technique. When when uh, I mean, literally the first time I ever saw bullet time, uh, the bullet time effect was in a music video years before the Matrix, mm-hmm. or a year or two before the Matrix, at least. You know, things like speed ramping, things yeah. like any any kind of cool new effect would always find its way into music videos first. So. Like, did you find, I mean, and part of, part of why I'm asking you is, you know, with a, with an art school background, mm-hmm. 
I would imagine that you're not just approaching it like, okay, load the camera, point the lens, key, fill back. Like you're right. like, you, like I feel like you would be an enormous asset on, on something that is basically a little art film. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And, and I really approached it that way. You know, I tried to do, listen to the director and came up with, with their ideas because a lot of them are pretty sure in what they want to do and that's how they get the job, you know, giving the, the pitch mm-hmm. to the, to the band. But you also have to, you know, deal with the band has a lot of input on what actually happens once you get there. Yeah. Because I've been on a few of them where the, where the music video collapsed and went away because the director and the band weren't seeing eye to eye and the director would get fired because the band, you know, they paid for it. Yeah. The record companies would put up a little bit maybe, but usually the band put up 50 to 100% of the money for them. So they wanted to have their say. And some of them absolutely had a lot to say and smart stuff and some of them, well, they're, you know, they're the damn client blow in the yeah. cabinet. So they, <laughs> they had a lot to say, but it wasn't very intelligible. Um, but, uh, well, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I continued, you know, I continued, and I like doing music videos for but, that. But in that zone, did you find, did you find that your art background was, was, um, you know, like I, I left your mind open to certain kind of unconventional things and like, what kind of, what kind of ideas would like, if you can give me like an example of the kind of ideas that might come to you as a result. That's a tough one. I don't know. There was, you know, because mostly it was just working, collaborating with the directors on things. I can't remember any specific shots or specific setups or specific mm-hmm. gags. Well, there's, you know, a couple of things. I mean, I remember we were shooting a, a video for this Scottish band called Gun, and we had a white wall, and there was water on the ground. The, the director, he's actually turned into a very successful painter now. His name is Russell Young. He was a still photographer, and now he's a painter. Oh, cool. Um, and he did very arty kind of things, and it was really cool. But I saw at one point there was a kids riding on a bicycle and a woman wearing an angel wings. And I had a 10 K open face, 10 K and it sort of slipped and pointed down. I saw it bouncing, this bounce into the water. There was water on the ground. Let's ripple the water, bounce into the water and shoot them, their reflection. Yeah. And uh, shadow on the wall. And I just saw this, said, hey, let's try that. Let's just shoot this, this shadow. And it was, it was beautiful. It was one of the nicest parts of the, of the video things like that I'm open to always looking for different kind of yeah know, as long as the, they're receptive yeah, you, know, yeah. You, you try that sometimes and it's like now ah, what are you doing you're trying to be arty farty you know we want to <laughs> tell a story here kid you know <laughs> get that side of it too yeah but I feel like I feel like uh, you know for a while there you know in the 80s and, and certainly into the 90s uh, the artier the video yeah. the more successful it was yeah. you know especially you know like you know, I'm kind of a child of the nineties. So like the whole grunge movement mm-hmm. and I, I'll sometimes go back and watch those videos, like smells like teen spirit, mm-hmm. obviously, but all, yeah. all uh, you know, the Pearl jam, Jeremy stuff like that. And it's like, you know, the, the sense of composition, the way that they were using visual effects, the way they were using, some of them were using cross processing or ENR oh, yeah. or something like yeah. that. They were using stuff that you would never have the balls necessarily to, to do a whole feature that way. Cause it would be overkill. Right. It would be hard on the audience, but for, Two and a half minutes to make yeah. something that was basically yeah, it was perfect, like it was an, like art movies, yeah, yeah, little art movies, yeah, yeah. So and hopefully part of the reason that people would hire me is because I had that background. Yeah, you know, I showed that I could do that kind of stuff. Um, and when I think about uh, your feature work, and it's it's weird because like before uh, before we got here, you know, I was trying to think like what's the common thread between like something like Monsters Ball and something and and like the Christopher Guest movies, and there's like a real sense of intimacy even though the Christopher guest movies are, are like farce played as documentary mm-hmm. almost, but there's like this hardcore sense of intimacy. 
um, like what is, what does that mean to you? Like, how do you, do you, are you consciously going after that? Is that something that you bring to your work or is that just how those movies needed to be? Well, I think in the, in the case of the Christopher Guest movies, they kind of had to be that way because it's, it is the mockumentary feel and you're supposed yeah. to be like, you're there with them and there's certain rules you don't break. You don't go into the room before the actor does because then it's no longer the documentary feel. You need them to bring you in. Isn't and there one shot in Guffman where you actually do that? There might be. It's the shot of Corky in his bathtub crying when everyone. Yeah, but we were in there. We were already, we were, he was already in there. When we oh, were there. He, remember, we didn't go in there and have him come in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, oh, okay. he's sitting. He's know, like crying in the yeah, bathtub, and I'm like, yeah. "How did a camera get it?" Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, and he's talking. No, he's talking to the camera in that one. Actually, oh, okay. he actually talks to the camera. Um, but no, it's it's um, you know, that's the, the conceit. There is that it's you don't pan from one actor to the next before they say their line. You know, you let it draw you. you yeah, because you're supposed to be real. You don't know they're going to say something until they do. And are you operating? And I was operating. Yeah. So do you feel like when you're, when you're working on those Christopher guest projects, do you almost feel like another cast member because you're yeah. sort of the observer? Yeah. And you have to really get into the story, the character, what each actor, you know, what their part is and, and how that works. And you're privileged to be there in the room with them. So you have to know how to react with it. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And to keep from laughing and to keep the camera from it's shaking. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. Because <laughs> most of that was single camera. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Guffman and Best in Show were mostly single camera except for the the stage show in Guffman and the dog show. You know, yeah. The yeah. dog show itself we had I think at times we had like almost seven cameras. But most of it was all single camera. For your consideration it was all two camera. Mm-hmm. And um Family Tree was all two camera. That was a TV series we did for HBO. Um but then with with uh Monsters Ball and those kind of films, I each one I tried to bring, you know, a, a different feeling like Monsters Ball had a a bit of a feeling of John Wayne's The Searchers trying to be sort of formalistic and showing, you know, using hero shots and um, strong compositions and all. Um, and the other movies, Stranger Than Fiction, they all had references to what we're doing. But I still believe in choice of lens and camera position just tells a lot about what you're supposed to feel about the character or what they're supposed to be going through. Okay, so this this brings me back to something that I started to ask you earlier and then and then got uh, somehow sidetracked. Um, and that's that, so you're given the script to Monster's Ball mm-hmm. or you're given the script to Stranger Than Fiction or The Quantum of Solace or any of these other films. Uh, and, and you look at the script. How is it that you go about, like, you're going to meet with the director. Uh, presumably, they may be meeting with other people or whatever. You're, you're going to pitch them how you're going to do it. How do you uh, take the script and kind of boil it down into a visual language for you? Well, I think I started to, to say it, and I think I got I distracted myself. Um, <laughs> that it was very particular because the nine movies I did with Mark in a row, except for on Quantum of Solace, where I had to interview. Well, on Finding Neverland, I had to be interviewed by the producer mm-hmm. um, Richard Richard Gladstein, and then on. Quantum of Solace, I had to pass muster with the broccolis to for market bring, which has bring to be its own crazy story. Which that we should ask. It was well. It was no. They were just lovely people, and mm-hmm. we met somewhere in an office at uh, Sony and or, <laughs> or at their place. I don't remember where it was, but it was you know met with them, talked for fifteen minutes or half an hour, and they said fine. Um, but Mark hired me. You know, wanted me on these. I didn't have to convince him. I didn't have to meet with him and say hire me. Mm-hmm. Was, you know, he says he called me. Said, I got a movie. Let's do this. We got to move. But even if you don't have to prove yourself, so so you're given the script for Finding Neverland or something, and 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 how do you? 
do you have a process and some people do, some people yeah. don't, but do you have a specific process when you're looking at it where you're thinking about here's how I'm going to light it or here's how I'm going to use lenses for this or that, or here's the color palette that I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how does that work for you? I do have that kind of a um, process and I read the script and I, I see it. You know, I, I see things going on in my mind. I try to take notes of what I'm seeing as far as ways to do shots or specific shots or, or framing things or, you know, wacky ideas. What should be, what would be nice to have included in there to do things. Um, and then Mark and I had a very particular way of working that when we were in prep, we would sit down for weeks every day and go through the script from the beginning to the end and plan out every scene and every shot. And we do it on a diagram working out. Cause we started doing that on monsters. Like, like an overhead. Yeah. Like an overhead, like a, like a blueprint. Did you ever go to storyboards or is that? No, not, not really. Uh, I think one, one action sequence was storyboarded on, on quantum, right? Actually in this room here, uh, they brought a storyboard bond people sent over their storyboard artists from Britain who they had worked with for years. And we were here with Dan Bradley, also second unit, because it was mostly about the second unit stunt stuff. And we looked at it and we watched all that. And the guy was doing all these shots that we didn't ask for, we didn't want and kind of stuff. And Dan just said, get him out of here. And Mark told that they, we didn't want to use the storyboard. So they, they oh, dropped wow. him. Um, but no, we did all these, you know, basically blueprints. And I would read the story, the, the scenes with Mark, and he would read it to me and tell me where he wanted, at what point he thought the characters should be where and when they should be moving and what kind of you know positions they should have. And then I would just take that and make a shot list. Do you think he came in with that idea or do you think that it was in the conversation with the two of you that like in having in having to even think about it, he started articulating? I think he started articulating while we're... Some of the things he, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with it, but a lot of it we discovered while we were sitting there because we would spend like six hours a day, five days a week for eight weeks. Wow. Um, drawing these things out. And it started on Monsters Ball because... We knew coming out of um, everything put together, which was basically shot uh, dogma style, and that you know, <laughs> I, I had one Kina flow, I think. Oh Jesus! And we said, but so I said, you had a light that is not dogma I, style. I, exactly. <laughs> I said it was almost dogma style, and plus they they used costumes and it did make yeah. Out yeah. Everything. No, I know. But I, I chose locations and and uh, time of day. Uh-huh. I said, we can shoot this, but we have to shoot this between this hour and this hour for daylight, the way the lights were going to work in the windows and all that kind of stuff. But coming from that, going into Monsters Ball, where suddenly we're two and a half million dollars, which was enormous for us, and 25 days with some really big actors, I said, we better be, we better know what we're doing. And so we planned out every shot, every scene, every dolly move, every camera position, the whole thing in prep, gave it to the first AD. He figured out then scheduling and how to do it. And... We were very lucky that when Billy Bob and Hallie came in, and Peter and Heath and all of them, Mark would say, "So they go there, and then on that line, I really want you to go over to there." And they, they didn't have any of these. Oh, well, you know, my character wouldn't do that. It's uh, that's not right. I've got to go over to here, and I. So they really worked with us in that, and it, you know. Was, so he, so you and he basically pre-blocked the actors as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, he blocks the actors, and then I do this the camera setups. And so the so when you're doing that, are are you? Uh, is he saying, well, well, so we'll have the actor here and we'll have this other actor here. And then you're saying like, well, okay, if that's the case, then coverage here, coverage here. Dolly yeah, shot I there. said, but if you're going to do that, then we have to do, you know, we can't just do it in the two shot or we can do a two shot and move it and wrap around it. We'd love to do this in, in a one or and all that. And we figured it all out on paper. But and, you're, but you're kind of cap, you're the captain of yeah, where the camera is going to go and all that stuff. Yeah. And we did that for all our movies all through Machine Gun Preacher. 
I mean, I have the books of all the drawings and the diagrams. Wow, I'd love to see And that. some of them, you know, we diverged from the plan because it happens. You know, you get on the yeah. set and it happens with everything. Um, but we, you know, pretty much kept to our plans pretty well. Well, if which, you don't have a plan, which, then you're screwed. Yeah. Well, one of the good things about doing it this way was doing from the beginning of the film to the end, we had it in, in a way of flow that it wasn't suddenly you get to the middle of the film and now you're shooting that like the first day. So you have this one style and then you go to the scene that precedes it and it doesn't quite match up because, so we had all our transitions. We had all our, a flow figured it. No, that's great. All, which was, I thought really helps. How much thought do you put into the transitions? Like are, when you're I thinking? I put in a lot. Of, I always, when we're shooting, I'm always asking, and I'll, if I don't remember it, I'll call the, the script or somebody and say, what's the, what's the end of the scene that comes before this that we're shooting now? Because, Oh yeah, that's going to be so and so, and I I want I need to do this. So and because usually when I'm not shooting with Mark, most of the other directors don't go through that with me. Yeah, you know they say figure it out if you want to, but I don't get that kind of you know. It's so funny because I always do that, and some some DPs that I work with are are completely excited about it. Some people, some entire crews just don't give a shit. Like I'll really? yeah, it's like I'll show it to them. They're like, oh great, you have a plan, and that's the end of it. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I even use this app, which I've talked about on the podcast before. I'm not affiliated with them, but it's yeah. called Shot Designer, and it just allows I you think to. I, I think I downloaded it, but I found it too tedious to use. Oh it my just god, took me too long. I, to me, it's like really easy just to make it a very fast overhead. Yeah. The problem is, whenever I would do it before, it would always just be un, unintelligible chicken scratch that only made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And with this, it like helps you build a shot list, and it makes it so that you can show it to other people. I just oh. used it last week for a project. Um, I'm used to the pencil and the pen on a on a blueprint of the set, no. and I do it like football diagrams. You know, people with numbers, the uh-huh. characters have numbers, and a line you know moves with an arrow where they're going to, and the camera's got a position that has a number for the first shot, and it has like dolly track or movement. Or I would love or to see that if you'd be cool. willing to show me any of yeah, them. I, I just sure. I just I'm fascinated with how people go about preparing. Yeah. So, so, so you're not using storyboards. Do you, um, I mean, do on you a couple have, of action sequences in some other movies, we did use some storyboards like on the host. I think there were a couple of scenes that were storyboarded. Yeah. Um, and I think on Geostorm there might've been one scene that was storyboarded. Um, but usually not too much, just, you know, some of the, if the studio, you know, or the director really wants it for an action scene, you know, I'm fine with that. You know, anything that helps. But do you feel like it boxes you in at all? I find it can, it can, and it can also box everybody in. If they look at it, I've, I've been on those shots and it's like doing a commercial, you know, they've got storyboards Yeah. and I, I don't know if you ever worked with the Japanese, but on a Japanese commercial, if the, the agency and they're all looking at it and they look at the frame on the monitor and they look at the board, they go, oh, no, that's good. I don't know. And you go, what's the matter? He goes, well, the vase is a little too far to the left for the board shows a little more to the right so because they sold these it's this whole thing they sold these boards to their clients and they have to bring back exactly what they sold at least they can they can change up afterwards they can do other shots but they need to at least shoot exactly those yeah that makes sense and to to a very very high you know high level of accuracy um but i find that sometimes people and I, it's it's come to me a couple of times also where I'm doing it. I go, oh, we can't really do that because the board shows it. Like, they go, wait a second. The board is a guide. It basically tells you how many shots and the kind of shots you need to tell this story. So let's not get you know hung up in repeating exactly what the board shows. Yeah, yeah. And that's where, where previs can create, make you crazy also. Because sometimes, you know, the previs, and it's, it 
if it doesn't match the previous exactly, it's like, oh, we're, so, but there's no, you're not fitting this into something that's already been done. So it doesn't have to match it exactly. It can yeah. be slightly different. And still, as long as it's exciting and gets the shots and gets the story that you want, oh, no, but the previous, it's got to be exactly. Well, they the spent, they spent a lot of money on that previous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. I, I I've I've heard people tell me people who remain nameless that previs kind of like sucks the soul out of it for them. It can because yeah. by the time you get there, it's just a dead thing that yeah. you've already yeah. been prodding at for six months. The best thing about previs for me is when you have to work with sets and wall heights and blue yeah. screens or whatever, and you can put the camera and you can find you can look at the build of the set way before and say oh, we're going to be shooting. This is the shot I want to do. We're going to be off the set there. So we need to build something bigger there. Or this is where we need green screen. We only need to cover, you know, a 12 by, we don't need bigger than that. Cause yeah, yeah. that kind of stuff. But it should all be for the convenience of what happens on, yeah. on the day, not, yeah. not become the master right. and you have to serve it. Exactly. So, well, uh, I, again, you brought this up and, and I don't know that anyone else has ever brought the idea of, of th- even just thinking about the transitions. So mm-hmm. like what kind of, what kind of thought process do you put into, uh, into doing a transition? How shots cut together, how, you know, how color works between one scene and the next, how are you trying to make framing? connections or are you trying to make disconnections? Well, it's just trying to make, sometimes it's connections. Like, I don't know if you saw stay, I did stay is like that movie's based on transitions because so much of the story is about the two different characters who, you know, what's real, who's real and how that is. So we built all these VFX laden transitions into it. And so we had to be very precise on what we were doing, but they all had a meaning. It wasn't just to be cool. There yeah. was meanings in all those transitions. And I just like need to know that, you know, when I shoot something of doing this scene right here, what it cuts to, if it cuts to, a scene that's going to be the exact same framing or something. And it shouldn't because it's a whole different feeling, a whole different idea in the story. I want to make sure that I get something here that's going to cut well with what we're going to do in the next scene. Or if we've already shot the next scene, something that's going to cut well with that. Or if it's something about, you know, a face on the left side of the screen, it's going to really cut nicely with a face on the right side of the screen looking the opposite way. Or do you want it in the exact same position because it's telling something in the story that it's the person over the other person or the person over a, a, you know, a statue or something. And do directors who, I mean, like to me, that seems that's not something that's ever been brought up to me when I'm on a, on a shoot, but I feel like if it, if uh, a cinematographer came up and said like, Hey, how about blah, blah, blah. I would, I would, I think I would fixate on that. Like I'm probably going to fixate on it from now on, mm-hmm. but, but there are some directors you've worked I mean, I'm not asking your name names, yeah. but some directors, it's not that important to them. Is it just because you're getting coverage? So, you know, you're going to go from a, tight piece of coverage to a, a master in the next or whatever. Some, some just figure, you know, they'll just hose it down. They'll have everything possibly <laughs> there and you could, you can, you know, do anything. Or nowadays you can shoot 6k or 8k and then you can just shoot a wide and then we'll just punch in and make a better frame or a different frame mm-hmm. that we want that matches, you know, better for the cut because the editor says, well, let's do, let's just squeeze in on it. Um, which is a whole other, you know, whole other side of shoot it in post. Yeah. And don't even understand or care about what different lenses do and the effect that they have psychologically and the emotional effects and all that. But, um, no, I mean, some directors, yeah, don't respond to it completely. And some directors say, I, you know, I don't know. And I say, look, uh, let me give this to you. Obviously it could all change in the edit. Who knows? And in the edit, this scene might not even happen after that one. It might change. Although it seems story-wise the way the script is set up, it's going to be pretty close. But 
So let's just do this. This would be a really cool transition. And if you don't use it, you don't use it. You know, and usually unless it means having to spend an extra two hours for them setting things up or, you know, that they really say, no, we really got to move on and get this. Or, or I don't, I obviously, I, I so much don't care. I don't even want you to do it, which has been rare. Usually it's been pretty well accepted, the idea yeah. of getting a flow and getting, you know. <laughs> I so don't care about this making any sense that I yeah. actively want you to not do <laughs> right. the thing that makes sense. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, so from working on uh, mini DV kind of projects, and I feel like, you know, mini DV almost forces you to be intimate because it's the only part of it at mini DV that really works is mm-hmm. if, like the tight close ups. Yeah. Like wide shots just look like ass. Um, do you feel like that informed when you, when you went back to, you know, a larger format? I mean, even, even Guffman, which was, that was 16, right? Super 16. Guffman was 16. Um, and obviously Monsters Ball, I'm assuming was 35. I did not look that Monsters up. Monsters Ball was 35. Um, but did it, did it inform, because again, I, 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 I do see kind of this intimacy in your, in your work in the, in the way that you work. And I, and I feel like when you talk about Guffman, about how, about sort of being almost another character in the scene, um, and it's, it's funny the, the way you describe monsters ball, because it's not how I remember, remember it. And I watched mm-hmm. it not uh, probably six months ago. I probably mm. wa- watched monsters ball. And to me, there's just an outrageous amount of intimacy in that film. Um, I understand what you're talking about with, with the, the compositions, but even within those compositions, I feel like I'm like right in these people's spaces mm-hmm. and seeing them doing like little and I, I'm assuming a lot of that's in the script and a lot of that's in the directing, but I feel like a lot of that also live, lives in, in the way you chose to lens it. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you, do you feel like, I don't, I don't know that I have a full fully formed question here, but do you, f- do you feel like, you know, kind of like working with mini DV and then working on these things? Do you feel like, do you think that you were already working in kind of that intimate way or do you feel like the work you were doing kind of drew you into doing that kind of material? No, I think I was already working in, in that kind of way. And I think my personal take on, and it's a generalization now because there are times when a long lens for close-up works better mm-hmm. or fits better. Um, but I generally feel like you want to be there in the space with the actor and close and that the audience just perce- has that perception. They don't, they don't know that you've got a 32 millimeter on there. They don't know that it was not a hundred millimeter lens or whatever, yeah. but there's something about the, what what that particular lens does to the face and the space that you're the closest that you are with the actor. At that so time. is that a hypothetical or it's, is that like literally you like a thirty two millimeter? I like a thirty two for for a close up. Oh nice. Um, it's it's something. It's just it's a more human vision and it makes you feel like you are there in that person's face. And I just find it it's, it 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 draws out the emotions from the actor mm-hmm. and the audience feels the emotions better. Than, you know, a three hundred millimeter lens across the room to punch out a single, or worse, shoot it on eight K and zoom yeah. in and find <laughs> that single. It just has, it gives you a distance, which to me is an emotional distance. Do you think a part of it is also that if you're on a thirty two millimeter lens, getting a medium or a close up, you're physically close to the actor, yeah. and that they're yeah. actually kind of feeling? And it. I think they react to that space. Hmm. You know, you're there. You're there with them and they, they need to, I think they appreciate, in general, they appreciate the fact that the camera is on them and it's, they can feel that it's right there and they know that they're giving what they're giving rather than just being spied on from a distance. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. 
And uh, like when you're when you're doing something like the Guffman movies, I mean, how how do they how do they even come up with a plan of of coverage for that? Because it feels so they they do feel so spontaneous, all of them. Yeah, that that's is kind of different. It's like they don't rehearse really. We just get the space and Chris says, "I'm probably going to move." You know, everybody just give me give me that portion of the room, and then if we have to, we can turn around and do that portion of the room if you can't light it all, and. You just go in and, and said, so this is what you guys start, blah, 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 and just start with a two shot and find, find what happens. And, you know, you go in and you with this guy and then he's talking and you push in a little closer to him and then suddenly she starts talking and so you have to come around and get her. And then after you get the, you know, a few takes of that master type of action, then you go in and you do coverage on specific little pieces. Now, had you ever done like, uh, aside from the news, like straight documentary shooting? Yeah, I did. I did do straight document. Well, it was new. It was feature news. So it was documentary for, for TV news mm-hmm. stations, for European news. Um, and then I did go on and do docu- pure documentary after that in Italy. I did a lot of documentary work, mostly, mm-hmm. mostly um, ethnographic stuff, you know, like traveling around indigenous peoples and, different wonderful countries and amazing places. So, I mean, do you think that that documentary um, aesthetic, I mean, like you weren't necessarily known for documentaries. In fact, when Christopher Guest first hired you, he was probably, you were probably better known for music videos. And In America, yeah, but he knew, he saw my, my resume and he saw that I had had a lot of documentary work in Italy. Uh-huh. And I think that's one of the reasons that he hired me. Interesting. So, uh, also because I didn't talk very much. <laughs> and, I, and, and because I didn't know anybody. I didn't know. I didn't. I wasn't in the Hollywood game, uh-huh. and they would say they would say something about you know some TV show or something. I said, well, what, I don't know what that. What is that? I think he liked the fact that I had no idea of pop culture <laughs> in America at that time, because I'd only been here back from Rome like three years, I think, and I didn't uh-huh. watch TV and I didn't know all these actors. I you know somebody could his. In fact, I went to his house um, at the beginning of. Guffman, we were planning something. He said, come on over and I'll show you some stuff at the house. And so I got over there and I walked in and there's a photograph on the wall. This man with a big hat sitting in a be- at a beach, no shirt on, from the back. And uh, he said, oh, my wife took that picture. He says, she's a good photographer. I go, oh yeah, she is. She is a really good photographer. She, is she a professional? Is that what she does? And he goes, no, no, she just... And I said, oh, cool. She says, that's, that's her, her dad. I go, Nice. Really cool. We walked around and did the whole thing. And then like three days later, I found out who he was yeah. married to. And then that was Tony Curtis and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah. and I think he liked the fact that I just didn't know any of that stuff and wasn't like, oh, wow, you know, can I meet or, you know, so-and-so. Oh, you know, yeah, the yeah. schmoozing and all that stuff. Cause I, and I see it still today, you know, people say names of actors or things. And I'm like, who? What are they? No, I've never seen them before. Whenever I've seen uh, Christopher Guest interviewed or anything, he always seems completely allergic to that. Oh, yeah. That culture. Yeah, he is. He is. Totally. Do you think there's there's like an undercurrent like in 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 his work, you know, in Guffman and Best in Show and um, uh, Mighty Wind, there's sort of a satire of of the idea, the very idea of show business or of people Mm. getting wrapped Mm -hmm. in show business. Do you think that those are statements against that? I know that's not really a cinematography question. Um. I think so. I think so. He doesn't like to play the game. Yeah. I know that. I mean, Jamie's a lot more sociable and social than he is. Um, he, I don't think he attends too many events and those kind of things. And he's, you know, he'd rather play guitar. 
mean, you know, he, but he's good at, he's good at everything he does. No, he's, yeah. he's definitely a yeah. genius and has kind yeah. of carved out like such a very specific niche in what he does. And I've done like about a hundred TV commercials with him and it was, you know, that type of thing, the same kind of thing. Oh, cool. They, yeah. I, I think I know some improv actors who were in a few of those hmm. then. Uh, an anomaly, maybe not, but, uh, you know, you brought up stay and mm-hmm. to me stay is like an outrageously stylized film, you know, yeah. whereas monsters ball, I think is stylish in the way that you filmed it, but it takes place in kind of a very realistic world right. and the, you know, all the Christopher guest stuff is fake documentary and, and, you know, genuinely, you know, like it has to, has to feel like it's actually happening right. spontaneously. Stay is like kind of the polar opposite. Mm-hmm. How, how did you go about, um, like what drew you to that material and how did you go about kind of coming up with that look? Well, getting drawn to the material was that Mark had a screenplay and he said, let's do this. This is the next picture. Mm-hmm. And I said, great. And so I read it and it was like, um, well, David Benioff had written it and I really liked the, the story that he wrote. It was basically a take on an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or, um, Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. yeah. That basic conceit. Um, but I loved it. You know, I always liked Twilight Zone those kind of things and so we said we got to make it this world that it's real but it's not real and you the audience could never really know who where the reality is mm-hmm. and we want, always want to be going uh, in between the two different characters and all these other transitional characters so there was a conceit that we had and I don't remember the exact formulation of it now but was that if we would cut if if Ewan was in one scene and then he was not in the next scene, we would use one kind of a transition. And if you and and, uh, and Ryan were in a scene and then both of them were in the next scene or one was in one of the scenes, we'd have another way of transi- transitioning. So we had a real formulaic, um, it was a definite, a definite uh, structure mm-hmm. to it. And the thing of repetitions of images and characters and the, dub- the, the, the twins and the triplets and the... Um, the way his apartment was designed. Kevin Thompson, who was the production designer, did an amazing job on put all these elements of other parts of the film, other parts of the the um, story were all made up into there what their apartment was. Yeah. So you can look at it, the apartment it never really existed in a way because they didn't even know each other, um, Naomi and, and you, and they only meet on the bridge. Yeah. So there's all these things that to, to make this construct, you have to build a kind of a universe that's, doesn't exist but it sort of feels like it could and the audience isn't supposed to know that it doesn't yeah. until the end and um so it was a, for me it was really a wonderful challenge in doing something that was very very um I forget the word you used it was very stylized yeah very stylized in a very i thought a very beautiful way totally by kevin and i wanted to complement all of that and make it feel real but heightened reality that everything was just a little bit more. I did stuff with colored filters. Yeah, there was a polarizing real, like, color filters. I really remember the stuff, like the colors looking kind of surreal. Is sometimes yeah. yeah, and most of it was done in camera. Oh, really? And then there was a lot of VFX stuff done, mm-hmm. and uh, Kevin Haug did the VFX designing on that, and did some beautiful stuff. And then uh, this guy Doc, who's no longer with us, did the final bit with that. He wrote this algorithm thing that does all this stuff. It looked like you know the. The, the 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 fiber stuff mm-hmm. moving around when they're on the bridge at the end when when Ryan pulls the gun out and shoots himself in yeah. the mouth that whole thing all that warping and stuff that was going on that was really really incredible um, the bridge was amazing I mean getting to shoot on the real Brooklyn Bridge for five nights shut down 
And then we did close-up stuff. They built a set with mm-hmm. green screen to replicate part of the bridge. So we had a lot of control over everything. And those places like where Ryan and all the transitions, like where Ryan and Ewan are walking through that building, which is there's the columns are almost as big as the entire inside of the building. And it's a it's a real building, an AT&T building down, oh, it is? downtown New York. Yeah. I just went by it a, a few weeks ago when I was in New York. God, I thought I would have sworn that yeah. that was a set. No, it was a real building and it had never been given permission before. But David Benioff's family are very connected and they got permission. They got us oh, in there. Sweet. So yeah, it was really an amazing place. But doing that the way we, we, we blocked it was that they're walking through these columns and it almost feels like, you know, they're swapping places and the columns are yeah. going into each other and then going through the door. The revolving door, which then goes into the aquarium, and then you're in there with this uh, the, the um, manatees or whatever those big those fish were behind the glass, and then you go through that, and the fish swims, and it takes you out onto the outside of the painting studio that that Ewan is in with Naomi, and it looks like it's an aquarium, and then the water just dissolves, kind of disappears, and then you're into the aquarium, into that room, and then it all goes from there, you know, back to where Ryan is somewhere. So all of these things, it had to be structured. Yeah. You know, it had to be understood before we went into it. So it was very well plotted out. So and, same process. And you guys yeah. sitting here yeah. doing overheads for eight weeks. Yep. Yep. And working with VFX and previs on, on making these transitions work. So it's interesting because I feel like there are famous kind of cinematographer director pairings that, you know, like, uh, uh, Roger Deakins and the Coen brothers, or for a while, Robert Richardson and Oliver Stone or whatever, mm-hmm. where you, you almost like, I mean, I think actually Robert Richardson and Oliver Stone is an interesting example where for the longest time I thought what was Oliver Stone's look was really Robert yeah. Richardson's look. Right. And then when I saw, I think it was Fast, Cheap and Out of Control, the Errol Morris documentary, I'm like, oh, right. it's that guy that's making it like that. Yeah. What is it like, like returning to work with the same person? Like you almost become like partner partners in mm-hmm. crime after mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. And, and you've hit so many different genres together and so many different styles and different formats and everything. Um, and, and in a way would, I mean, like you already had a massive amount of experience, but was, was there a sense of almost like, it's almost like you've grown up together in features a little bit? Kind of. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we first met, uh, we really hit it off. I really liked him as a person and realized that we both had very similar tastes of style of what we like. He's a better dresser than I am, but, um, (laughs) as far as architecture and design and all of that. And so we always tried to blend you know, find a architectural medium that would be the right one for this film or a look that would be the right one for that film. Mm-hmm. And never trying to look the same because also the genres are very different. Almost every film had a different... Yeah, most directors don't don't get to do that. Don't right, and Mark really would jump around and specifically try to find something very different for each film. Yeah. And I really appreciated that because it kept me... You know, I still have a, a style, I guess, but it doesn't mean it doesn't feel like you can see the same thing in each film mm-hmm. um so it, it just allowed me to really stretch which is great but we had a real shorthand and mm-hmm. really you know a really good way of working like that and it was um everyone was a challenge but we saw things pretty much you know the same way so i'm, I'm i really only have one other question that i kind of want to sure. talk about i mean if you can talk about anything you want to talk about but um uh, it's just the fact that uh, I've actually never spoken to someone who's shot a James Bond film before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, famously, that franchise has been micromanaged by the same family right. who handpicks every director, you know, whatever. Right. And, you know, they've, they've actually done, you know, I think a pretty amazing job of, of, uh, of, of refreshing mm-hmm. it like every generation. Yeah. And 
you know, I would almost say that Daniel Craig is probably my favorite iteration of that. And they had just done that one film before you came on board. So when you're, when you're hopping onto something like that, how much are you able to make it your own? How much, how much are the broccolis going to, are they sitting on set like Zalaman King was? No, not at all. No, they were, they were completely supportive of, you know, they saw the design ideas and the thoughts and the process and Mark explained, you know, tell him what he was thinking about doing. We didn't have much of a script to work with. So it was kind of like flying by the seat of your pants writing as we were going along. Cause there was a, a skeleton of a script and then there was a writer's strike. And so mm. we were sort of off on our own, but no, they were extremely supportive of everything. And they, you know, they, they loved, they looked at the dailies and they loved what they were seeing. So they were, you know, just continue doing what you're doing. And we, you know, we described a kind of a style and a kind of a look that we wanted the thing to have. And it was, you know, we we're sort of going for a retro Goldfinger, you know, bring back that element of it. 60s architecture and color and design and mm-hmm. stuff to it um but still keep it you know modern and fresh also that film has the distinction of i think being maybe one of certainly under five probably Ilya could tell me um uh possibly under two features that use the dalsa oh, 4k yeah. camera and i know we don't talk too much tech but i have uh, well Ilya used Ilya worked for dalsa huh. when when that was going on and mm. I and I remember I remember the Dalsa because I was at Cinegear Expo one year and I said like can you handhold that and right. it was before Ilya was there and the guy was like sure thing and he put it on my shoulder and I thought yeah. like half my body was going right. to cleave off. Um, but uh, but you might be one of the first people ever to incorporate four K because yeah. the camera didn't last that long. Well, I think it was like you and Alice in Wonderland, the Tim Burton one. I think huh. used it for something as well. Yeah. How do I remember this crap? What? That choice was was engineered by David Stump. And, uh, and Kevin Haug, the visual effects, mm-hmm. who we realized what we had to do, or they realized what we had to do to do the... Um, we had long chats about how are we going to do the skydiving sequence. And to be clear also, it yeah. was only for one sequence. One sequence, you, the skydiving yeah. sequence. They didn't want... None of us wanted it to look like um, the bucket list. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Robin Williams and whoever, they're, they're flying down in this thing, and it's just like this face painted on somebody... Yeah. skydiving just looked ridiculous so and there weren't the possibility of a lot of the smaller cameras that they're out there right now to be able to do some of the stuff that we could do or attach it you know a body camera would be also dangerous to somebody skydiving so we found in england this giant skydiving um, rehearsal i guess you'd call it. it's a big giant tube with 140 mile an hour wind going up with a fan below it and you can have four or six people in there practicing skydiving and they just be you know, hovering in space floating around with the wind so we looked at that and saw that there were places we could put four cameras and kevin said let's do a stereoscopic of the people in their faces mm-hmm. it's not even stereoscopic whatever it is. it's a capture yeah. of them in space that we can then use to put bond in there and we could also put his put them out in space then so mm-hmm. we actually shot daniel and olga in there and also stunt doubles and um, shot them floating like that. And then they were able to change the around it. So we needed to have the highest resolution cameras possible. And at that time it was the Dalsa. So we had four Dalsas with their giant recorders. Yeah. And then we also added to that, I think, four Sony. I don't remember what the camera was then. F900 probably. It was probably an F900. Yeah. Four of those around to get additional material additional hmm. angle uh, uh, information because we could only get four of the dalsas 
And do you find yourself, I mean, like, you know, that's early 4K. Do you find yourself generally shooting? Do you still shoot a lot on film or do you have you? Um, not as much as I'd like to. I shot some mm-hmm. Super 16 race recently, but mostly it's been digital. Mostly mm-hmm. It's been Alexa. Although the last movie I did was uh, on a Dragon 6K. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said with the dolls in that wind tunnel, we also did some stuff where George Richmond, who was the A camera operator, got in there and had a two three five and was shooting some close up stuff of them mm-hmm. some on film to to intercut with it all. So it was it was interesting. And the Dalsa was I I hadn't at the end I've I ended up purchasing one set of the Dalsa Primes. Really? Which I which I have and they're beautiful lenses. You still have them? Um, yeah. Yeah, they're made by Leica. The glass is Leica and then uh Are they Dan just Sasaki, PL mounts or something or they're PL mounts. Oh, okay. Dan Sasaki rehoused them and rebuilt them. Yeah, I still have those. They're beautiful lenses. In fact my neighbor over there, Ramo Mosley, she's mm-hmm. a commercial director, and she's doing. She just she's done a feature, and she's planning another one. She was using them this last week on some commercials. Oh wow! So um, you're in that neighborhood where like the you're across the street neighbor like comes over and says, "Can I borrow a cup of PL Mount lenses?" Right, exactly. Yeah, and directly across the street, the house that's being rebuilt is uh, Steve Matzinger, who's a camera operator, and his wife uh, Mary Funston, who's a first AC. Oh wow! Yeah, we also used on Quantum. We also used the D20. Mm-hmm for the paleo scenes because when we shot the paleo we went there they do two paleos every year one's in july and one's in august and we went in july to see it to plan on where we put our camera positions and everything and then we went back in august and set up seven ten cameras around for the race but we had four d20s set up in specific places to capture the background to get all the crowds and the people. So oh, I think I read about that in American Cinematographer. They could put them back in because then when we went back and shot the action in the square where he comes up through the through the uh, water sewage pipe and runs across and the people are shot in the middle of the thing and he runs across and goes up to the tower. That we couldn't do during the real paleo. Yeah. So, and we couldn't get that many extras. So that was all you know, put in, in in visual effects. I remember reading about that in American Cinematographer, yeah. actually. And like at the time, it was sort of like, ooh, they're using digital in interesting ways. Yeah. And now it's like, yawn, they're using right. digital because right. everything's digital. No, now it's, ooh, they're using film in interesting ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much for uh, well. for coming on board. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll get some people to follow your Instagram I, feeds. I hope so. <laughs> and I do have a website, um, but it's mostly my reel. It's just... What is it? www.robertoschafer.com Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Roberto Schaefer. Thank you so much, Roberto, for uh, letting us uh, invade your your guest house and uh, record this. It turned out great. I hope you you really like it as well. (laughs) And uh, before we go any further, we wanted to once again talk about our awesome, amazing sponsor. Carl Zeiss. Carl Zeiss. I mean, could there be a better sponsor for the Cinematography Podcast? It's, it's going to be really tough. Carl Zeiss uh, has these incredible new lenses called the Milvis line of lenses. This is an update to their old series of lenses. And I recently did an event in uh, Silicon Valley for a production company up there in a studio space called Mac House Productions. Mm-hmm. And it was co-sponsored by Red. Red was there and we're now Red dealers. So we sell the, the, the Red cameras. And one of the cameras they have there is this new Red Raven. It's a very uh, small, compact camera. And there is almost no lens combination possibly more perfect for sort of like the Red Raven than these new Zeiss Milvis lenses. And we got to pass a camera around and shoot. I mean, it was like what, something. What, what makes the Milvis lenses uh, unique? 
Well, they're all mechanical design and they're incredibly high quality and they're relatively low cost. And if the, the Red Raven camera only comes in an EF mount, and so these are EF mount lenses or, or Nikon mount lenses, but you can put them on the camera and they have these awesome new focus rings that are mechanical that don't require any sort of special tools or attachments. You twist them and they lock onto the lens. What? Yes. And so you get this, you know, really fantastic focus throw and just outstanding build quality and these are an update from their previous line of lenses and just the build quality and everything about it is fantastic but i have to tell you about this silicon valley party that was going Mm -hmm. on at at mac house uh they had uh are you sure you weren't in an episode of the tv show silicon valley it really kind of feels like it because they they had uh jugglers and fire dancers they had a flaming whip and at one point there was a woman who did tap dancing while beatboxing at the same time which was what yeah i know it's like you had to be there you wouldn't have waved i, it, I was like, at a party like that once when i first moved to la and it was like right when i first started pitching around and one of the people who i'd pitched was this executive at a company he's like hey i'm having a birthday party this weekend come on down to it and a bunch of us went there and it was like flaming tiki heads and polynesian dancers and it was it was insane and and i i had just watched the big lebowski mm. on dvd like that day and it felt sort of like I had walked into Jackie Treehorn's, uh, <laughs> Jackie Treehorn's, uh, yeah, mansion party, w- weird ass party, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there was something sort of uh, surreal about Silicon Valley like that too. And this wasn't necessarily like a Silicon Valley uh, like dot com company that was doing it, but I could totally see all the performers doing like you know <laughs> the the Hooli party, yeah. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so- I would just corner Gilfoyle and ask him questions all night. Uh, can you, can you, uh, you know, anyone listening to this right now can tell that we're both giant like Silicon Valley nerds. So, uh, but, but what a fantastic show. And I think this weekend is the finale. Oh, the season, son of so. a bitch. Sorry for, for breaking that to you. Anyway, yeah, let's, sucks. let's move on and talk about the war story. So the war story, uh, I, th- I think that, uh, there, there could be no better segue from Roberto Schaefer to our, our next guest, which is Charles Pappert, because they both started out as Steadicam operators. That's right. Uh, Charles, fantastic Steadicam operator. You've seen his work. I mean, like if you've watched television uh, or saw the movie Office Space, you've seen Charles's yeah. work. He was an amazing Steadicam operator. And I actually think that he's got some interesting stories to talk about in terms of when he decided to quit being a Steadicam operator and become a DP and got rid of his rig. Like he's got some amazing stories. But Charles is a phenomenal DP. I don't know what he's best known for, but he shot every episode of Key and Peel. I'd say that's probably what he's best known for, although he did um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend as well. Yeah, and... and First season. And many other things. Uh, Actually, I got to interview Key and Peele about Charles a while ago, and they called him like the third... He and the the director, uh, Peter Atencio, they called him like the the unsung like third member of Key and Peele. So here's Charles Pappert's war story. And now, war stories. Somewhere around 2011, I was asked by Ben Garant and Thomas Lennon to shoot a pilot for them for the FX channel. Those are the guys who are the creators of Reno 911. And their new show was going to be something like Reno in Space. It was going to be set on a spaceship, and it was the hapless crew, somewhat similar to Reno. Their idea for where we would shoot the spaceship rather than build it, because we were on a very limited budget, was to go to a Russian sub that's moored down by the Queen Mary in Long Beach an actual working sub at one time. 
when we first walked down there was so incredibly claustrophobic that I started to have a panic attack because there was nowhere to get to. But we had to figure out a way, and I thought this would be a perfect one for As we walked through it, I could not imagine how we were actually going to shoot in this tin can. Lighting, I had to use very small units that I would hide up in the ceiling, so the sensitivity of the 1D Mark IV actually really worked in our favor. But approaching that chute, I had to go after it in such a way that I had to make it like a military operation, because it wasn't just where we're going to block scenes, it was literally, where do we put Video Village, where do we stage gear, what, what parts of the ship can we be in at any given time? And I made diagrams for every scene where everything was going to go, wherever all the humans would be. We spent three days in this uh, incredibly suffocating space, making a TV show that was actually quite funny. And then our fourth day, we emerged blinking in the daylight and went to shoot in the Arboretum in Arcadia. And Eddie Izzard played the baddie alien on the planet, kind of like in the old Star Trek. There was always some guy down on the planet that our crew had to battle. And of course, Eddie Izzard, comic genius. I was so excited to work with him. But we were trying to do a ton of setups. We were doing action scenes. And we got to the point in the middle of the day that every DP hates, where you can't control the sun unless you have the right tools. And we didn't have the right tools to do it on this one. So at a certain point, I had to kind of give up on the look. My only interaction with Eddie Izzard was somewhere in the middle of this, he kind of beckoned to me, he pointed two fingers and he beckoned to me. And I walked over to him and uh, stood next to him. And he very quietly said, I feel the sun coming through the trees on my face, which was very astute and very experienced actor thing. He knew there was raw light hitting him, that we had already gotten past the point where I know my diffusion would protect him. So he said, yeah, there's raw light in my face. He said, yep, yeah, I feel the light on my face. And I looked up at it and I saw that there was nothing I could do. And I went, oh, well. And he said, oh, well, I don't think I've ever heard a DP say, oh, well. And in my head, I thought, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> and that is my Eddie Izzard story. <laughs> <laughs> and now, short ends. All right, so that was Charles Pappert's war story. I look forward to finishing his episode faster than I have finished any other episode of this entire podcast. You and me both. <laughs> well, you know, you might have a moment now when you're not, uh, you know, on an airplane. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's a better time. So uh, anyway, Ilya, uh, we're, we're here now to talk about our short ends. What's your pet obsession of the week? OK, uh, this is a little nerdy and I don't always like to talk about tech, but I want to talk about something tech this time. Uh, there is a company which I only became acquainted with at NAB this year called Quasar Science and Quasar Science rules. These guys have come up with incredibly affordable and incredibly beautiful LED lights, including, uh, I think they're probably best known. And actually I define affordable because affordable can have many meanings, very affordable, like, um, $200, $75 tubes. They've got a bunch of stuff that's like really, really, really affordable. They have more expensive stuff as well. Like what can you get for $200 in an LED light? Wow. Okay. So they have a, a one foot long, battery powered 12 inch led light that's kind of shaped like a kinoflow like a small portable kinoflow and uh internal battery so you hit the button it powers on it's 
by color so you can switch between daylight and tungsten and uh it's got three levels of dimming for each of these things too so like really uh you can have people hand hold these lights you can attach them with mafers they are like these are incredible incredible little lights uh there's actually gonna be a big sale on them coming up soon and we went ahead and placed a massive stocking PO for the store. So we're going to have a ton of these quasar science lights in stock. Uh, I, I'll have I, to come over and check them out. I, I love them. They're really impressive. They've, they've worked at a deal with Kinaflow. So like if you buy these kits, you're actually getting genuine Kinaflow like uh, barn doors and stuff, but with their tubes inside, I, I'm surprised that Kinaflow would do such a thing, but they, wait, they, are they LEDs or are they they're LEDs, fluorescent? But they're LEDs inside of like a fluorescent tube. Really? Yes. Yeah, so it looks like a tube, but it's actually LEDs. You drop it, it doesn't shatter. It's And they're really high output. Very high output. Extremely high quality. Of course, we have spectrometers in our shop, so I've done the measurements on these things, and they will blow you away. They're super, super impressive. And uh, I just love everything about the company. The stuff they're doing is super innovative. I, I'm really going to talk to you about this because I'm sort of in the market to start moving towards LED lights. I still have a, a bunch of tungsten light kits that are yeah. fine for some stuff, but it's becoming... Burning your fingers. Yeah, burning my fingers. Popping circuits. And just like blowing out lamps and then having to replace them and... Uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there who um, are never going to get the opportunity to shoot like on a Lowell kit, like a Lowell Tota and uh. Omni, like those things that like the lights that were incredibly cheap and every film school bought them and it burned your fingers and you yeah, broke a bulb yeah. and you had these experiences. The new world order of lighting is going to be so easy. Everything's cool. Well, I've been waiting yeah. for them to to get more affordable because obviously LEDs, you know, like I feel like every filmmaker just needs to have an LED kit kind of sitting around for that day that they get a call about a job that they didn't know about. I mean, I have a regular client that I work for and she has all her own uh, led lights and I, and it's crazy once I I'm just used to setting them up now and seeing what she looks like. And, um, and if I take a step back, I'm like, this room's actually kind of dark, but she looks gorgeous on the monitor huh. and which is what she wants. Cause she has to read off of a teleprompter. She doesn't want a big light blaring in her face. But I like, as far as my own stuff, like, I don't know, 2001 i bought a bunch of like uh redheads and stuff off of ebay mm-hmm. and i still use them they're still fine they work great they're just hot as fuck they're hot as fuck if you're doing like uh product shots or anything with like ice cream or things that work no. i mean it's like if you try to do something like that hot lights are the are the bane of your existence they're just terrible well, also terrible. like they're all open face they're not fresnels so you can't really control them that well and you know like a good airy kit was always just a little too expensive for me to run out and buy it and and sort and they, of the, the and they things, take up so much space. They too. do, and sort of the things that kind of have replaced the typical sort of like airy kit. Like I'd say, like Felix kits have a lot of our clients. They would have taken an airy kit. Now they take a Felix kit. They're, they're very similar in sort of uh, functionality and number of units and things like that inside. But like companies like Quasar Science, the way that they're coming out with new stuff, it it's really amazing. It's super minimalistic. But they're also making like these LED globes that basically have Edison bases. So if you've got like those. Westcott's and sort of like those uh, soft boxes where you just put in a whole bunch of like Edison bulbs. You yeah. can put in these new LEDs and they're super powerful, super accurate. It's really, really impressive stuff. That's good to know about. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to, yeah. as soon as we get done recording this, I think I'm going to hop online and look at that. You can, or come by the shop. Or I'll come by your shop. <laughs> check it out. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Ben, what is your short end this week? So my short end is a total novelty and a goofy thing. It's, uh, it's called Fuse, F-Y-U-S-E, and it's an app. And I think the best way to, to learn about fuse, you can download it for free. I don't even remember how I found out about it, but basically 
it's sort of like a very poor man's bullet time is the only way to describe it. So you basically take your phone and hit record and like move around an object or move around a person or move around your dog. Cause let's be honest, you're going to do it with your dog or your cat first. And, uh, then you tell it to convert it. And what it does is it basically maps the 3d geometry of it. So you can, it has, uh, some like tiling tools and stuff like that, that literally live in 3d space. Hmm. Um, I don't, I don't tend to use those things, although lots of people do like fringe, the television series fringe, like their title sequence. Do is it like like 3d floating titles? The listeners won't be able to, won't be able to understand it, but I'm going to show you a fuse right now so you can see what I'm talking about. Oh, great. So then I can pantomime into the microphone. Like what's going on? Well, maybe, maybe that's a good way to do it. You can describe it. I'm going to pull up a picture of, um, er, of your friend, Tim's on it's Tim's. Tim's Johnson with yes. with with uh, the Samsung gear on his head. Yes, I see. So it's moving as you tilt or as you yeah, yeah as, you, as you tilt the phone, and you can also tap and drag. But it's a really weird way. What's what's cool about it actually is that it it's sort of because we're so used to looking at things on our cell phones now and looking at pictures <laughs> it's on a poor man's bullet time. That's a great way to describe it. <laughs> when you're, when you're, we're so used to looking at pictures on our cell phone and looking, just looking at the world through our cell phone. So this is sort of, a, there's uh, entire pages of people who've done travel stuff. So you can look through panoramas of, uh, you know, Iceland or whatever and, and, and see places that you've never been and you can sort of experience it. It's not quite virtual reality, but you're kind of in control of panning it. Now, the truth is, it's really a quick time file that you're panning through or that you're zooming back and forth through just by tilting your phone back and forth. That's the truth. But it's a cool gimmick. It's a fun gimmick and it hasn't worn off on me yet. I took it to a wedding and I took a bunch of picture, uh, a bunch of uh, fuses at the wedding and, uh, you know, and also I, t- I took it to with me to Tribeca and shot a bunch of fuses at Tribeca. And I think it's actually a fun way to kind of experience, you know, what it was like to have been in a place. Does it give you full resolution of your phone when you're trying this? So like if you've got like, you know, UHD on your phone, are you getting UHD fuses? Are they like high res and you could export them and do a little thing? Or? I don't know. I don't know if there's any way to do that at the moment. Uh, I'm showing Ilya the a subway platform from New York City. Uh-huh. Kind of fun. Yeah, it's a, it's a neat, weird little app. And I think everyone... Oh, uh, and you know, you don't have to just tilt it. You can actually just rotate, too, your whole body. You and can. that will... It kind of gives you this sensation of panning through something. That, that's cool. I like that. So oh, I, I was probably totally off mic there, and you couldn't hear any of that. No, I, I heard it. But it, 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 it you were very sincere. <laughs> so you, you were captured in the moment, just like Fuse captures uh, your photographic subject in the moment. So, <laughs> um, so everybody, go on Fuse. Uh, download it for free. Add me as a friend. Um, oh, it's social app as they, well. You know, I, th- I think they want to be like Instagram and maybe it's Instagram with these little, like, maybe you know, they'll get there and maybe they won't. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't really know. You're doing your part to help them get there. I just think it's a cool uh, idea. And I think, you know, someone, cause I, like I did have the thought of like, wow, can I, cause you can't, ex- actually, you know, you can bring it out cause you can export it as a, uh, as a GIF. Cool. I like that. So, because uh, I can text them to you. That would, that would be great. Then you could also like do something clever and stick it on Facebook and have like a little. You know, well, and also it has like a little applet that runs inside of Twitter and Facebook. And I also believe Instagram. All right. You convinced me. I'm downloading it. Yeah. I've, I've finally worn you down and you're going to spend no money on this app. <laughs> I'd never heard of it before this moment. So yeah, I, I don't even know where I found out about it, but everybody I show it to is like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And then like, you know, one out of 20 of them downloads it and, and adds me as their friend. I'm, I'm totally going to do it. 
and then you can be my friend. All right. I'm already your friend, Ilian. You know that. So uh, anyway, so uh, that's all we got for today for the cinematography podcast. Where can people find out more about you, Ben? Well, I'd say the best place to find out all about me is my website, benrockonline.com, or you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Neptune Salad. I've also been going to a great effort to use my Instagram more, and that's just Benjamin underscore rock because some dickhole already had Neptune Salad. <laughs> I'm sorry that I don't mean to laugh at your pain, but yeah, I, who would have right. thought another Neptune Salad out there was somebody who's like somebody's pissed off at me for for hoarding it on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else. I, I'm sure they are. So where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, and our website is hotrodcameras.com. Uh, also want to mention, of course, the home of the Cinematography Podcast is now at camnoir.com. We are slowly building it up with all kinds of new and interesting stuff. Hopefully, we'll have some more stuff up there soon. But uh, in the meantime, if you go to Cam Noir and click on Podcast, you can find all the various podcast episodes that we've done, including the Backlight Rants and the Backlight Tour, sort of the travel and leisure section of the I show. I need to do a Backlight Rant. You should. You really should do it. I have so many. Th- I'm an angry little man and people don't realize <laughs> You're that. You're not that little. That's true. I'm, six, I'm almost six foot two. That, 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 yeah. But I'm little in my heart and uh, <laughs> it's a congenital disorder. And uh, <laughs> but I just have so many, so many things that I'm filled with rage about in the world. And it would be fun to uh, try it in, in, in podcast form. There's a Game of Thrones joke in there somewhere, uh-huh. but, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'll just let let that hang out. There. Battle of the Bastards, Red Wedding. I'm not uh, going I was, through. I them. was thinking of like some sort of Lannister, like oh, I don't know. But then, then we're, <laughs> I'm going into going into some sort of like level of geekdom that no listener wants to hear. Right yeah, now. we just they, we just they, lost they, five thousand listeners. Five thousand people just said, said subscribe this. to the Cinematography Podcast. Screw this. Fuck those dorks. You know, uh, one of the cinematographers of uh, of uh, Game of Thrones though, Hot Rod Cameras client. You don't say. Yeah. Which one? Robert McLaughlin. Way to go, Robert McLaughlin. Maybe he'll buy some Zeiss lenses from you now. All right, cool. Well, so that wraps us up for uh, for this week. Uh, look forward to our Charles Pappert episode ASAP. And uh, please uh, subscribe and like. Please go and like. Uh, also, go to uh, www.musicbyks.com. Kays Alatracci does all of our music. And uh, you should hire him and pay him lots of money. And, and also, we'd like feedback. If you like the show, don't like the show, or have comments about the show know someone who you think should be on the show or we want to yeah. give us some feedback we'd like that so know, we can know somebody who who you think we should interview who you could hook us up with or uh you want to tell us that you're you hate the war story or you think we talk uh to each other too long we'll hear anything you have to say yeah absolutely uh but you know we do reserve the right to make fun of you later on the podcast but by name by name we're gonna drive to your house yeah <laughs> i'm leaving that out anyway <laughs> Thank you very much. Don't leave that out. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.